This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. All right, we've got some sponsors for the pod now. Wait, what? Every link you need for the things we talk about here is at artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors. First up, books. If you're into this podcast, Odds are you're probably a reader. We've got links to buy new books from bookshop.org and used books from alibris.com. And if you want to listen to your books, we recommend and use audible.com. It's great and the catalog is huge. All right. So if you're listening to this, you are online. Maybe you're very online. You probably have a website or are thinking of starting one. Maybe you want a website like artofdarkpod.com. We built that with WordPress, which is by far the most popular way to create websites. And the single best host for serious WordPress is WP Engine. I've personally used them for over a decade now, and I don't host my websites anywhere else. Go to artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors and click on the WP Engine link to learn more. Finally, the best way to support the show is at patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. Get the bonus After Dark content for every episode, access to the book club, and more. Thanks for supporting Art of Darkness. And I, I don't think that was too painful. I think no, we did a pretty good job good. there. Yeah. Yeah, that sounded good. Yeah. Yeah, we appreciate it. Hope is the thing with feathers. That perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest, chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. That's Emily Dickinson. That's one of her most famous poems. That's Kevin Art of Darkness, artofdarkpod.com. This is who we're talking about. I'm Brad Kelly, Twitter at Brad Kelly. This is Kevin Kautzman, Twitter at Kautzmania. We are Art of Darkness. Kevin, how are you doing? I've been better, Brad. I have a bit of a cold. Okay. But I am okay. I am jacked, and now I'm double jacked Yeah. Uh, based on that opening. I'm excited. I, I just mm. wanted it. There was like a moment when I was doing this prep where I was like, maybe I'll just read Emily Dickinson poems the whole time. <laughs> and that cheers 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 and, and for those uh watching on the youtubes i'm gonna be taking some uh nighttime cold and flu here as we go yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm ready yeah this is gonna be a banger i know people are excited about this mm -hmm. one i just did bukowski mm -hmm. what a hap what a happy accident yeah right? yeah it, it really yeah. was i we didn't plan to do to, to to try and and this is how sometimes this show works i mean it really feels sometimes like we're telling uh indirectly we're telling some other story right and sometimes we get these correspondences and bukowski and emily dickinson are somehow one of these yeah this is a big one for me because mm -hmm. she's a little bit of a 
cipher. You know she's important. You're told she's important. Mm -hmm. She's old timey. Uh-huh. Kind of remind. I'm thinking Whitman. Although I think Whitman was even a little older than her. Mm-hmm. Is she a modern? I don't know. What yeah. is she? Yeah. Well, let I me think- ask. Yeah, let me ask you the question before we get too far along the road, Kevin. What do you know about Emily Dickinson? I would think late. What you just said. Yeah, late <laughs> 19th century. Okay. Right. Uh, I'm thinking. Massachusetts for some reason. Correct. Yeah. Okay. She was a masshole. Uh Amherst for <laughs> yes. some reason. Yeah. And she's known for being reclusive. Mm-hmm. Did she go out at all? Mm. Was she a femicel? Mm. I I don't know. I and and I'm afraid that's pretty much all I know. Okay. I would assume no children. Right. That's uh, true. I think there's a, a bit of a, oh, she lived in an attic and her poetry mm-hmm. was maybe not published in her lifetime. She's one of these arch examples of somebody who labors in obscurity only to be discovered posthumously mm-hmm. and elevated about yeah. as high as one could be after death. Mm-hmm. Which, frankly, is the best that we could hope for on Art of Darkness. <laughs> that's what I'm um, shooting for. Yeah. That's yeah. Our, we, yeah. Mm, we really don't want to become too famous while we're alive, Brad, because of the incident. Well, yeah, I mean, you don't want people Obviously. to find out. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, yes, I joke a little bit, but that's what I know. And uh, of course, we appreciate everybody who listens to Art of Darkness now mm-hmm. while Brad and I are alive and kicking. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. what I know about Emily Dickinson. Am I, yeah, am I, I way? Uh, yeah, no, the- I would say I would say that's reasonably accurate and certainly fits in with the common conception of her. Um there uh just a slight correction on the years she died in 1886 at the age of 56 so late 19th century but really kind of i would say more like mid uh in in terms of her major productivity midnight mid 19th century she's really the um the oldest subject we've covered other than hieronymus bosch so far uh, i believe that make her a that would make her a contemporary of whitman yeah, I don't know Whitman's years exactly, but I think that's right. She certainly Leaves of Grass came out when she was an adult. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, yeah, that's all pretty much right. And I, I'm glad you kind of pointed out the thing. I mean, I, I, I will admit before doing the research of this episode, I didn't know a whole lot about Emily Dickinson. I'd read a couple poems that I thought were interesting maybe i didn't totally understand them and you know sort of selfishly wanted to use this episode to get figure out what the deal is with emily dickinson have a considered opinion about her and and really understand is she with emily dickinson (laughs) exactly writing poems in her attic Right. What's what? the deal with that? <laughs> right. Yeah. I wanted to figure out is the reputation of her greatness deserved? Is it not? Is it, you know, somewhere in between? Um, I will say I think it probably is deserved. To be honest, sure. After doing all right. this research. I, yeah. I think that, yeah, both you and I know that, well, you know now that it's mm-hmm. deserved. I assume that it is, mm-hmm. but I could see that there might be a, a, a chud jack out there, your average chud, who might mm-hmm. go, ah, they just needed to grab some woman from the 19th century right. and give her the, a participation trophy. Now, I don't think that right. I don't think that's the case at all, but you can sort of see that how that bias might exist. Ah, yeah. uh, this woman wrote poems in obscurity, and we're going to give her an also ran uh, right. ribbon. Right? <clears throat> yeah, yeah, and I think I yeah. think if you if they if 
that were the case, if there was this idea, well, we're just going to pick somebody from this time period to use. There are a lot of other active women writers who were very good, um, who could have been picked for that role. And certainly people who had less weirdness in their life story, less problematic stuff than Emily Dickinson, right? Um, Dickinson ends up being somebody you have to wrestle with. And there are few writers who more ink has been spilled about than Emily Dickinson. I'm going to, we're going to kind of see that. Um, and that actually kind of brings up a caveat I want to say before I really start to launch into this. Because so much ink has been spilled about her, clearly I'm not able to digest everything that has been said about her. There may be spots where I'm missing some anecdote that counters some other other piece of evidence. A lot of the stuff we know about her has been meticulously pieced together from letters from all over New England. And, you know, every few years, some other new thing pops up and it kind of overturns some previously held conception about her. So so I just want to put that asterisk there may be a thing or two I'm getting wrong here, right. um, but I and did do my diligence as well as I possibly could. As you always do, and and as people can always do, they mm-hmm. can go and tell you if you yes. got something wrong at <laughs> Art of Dark Pod yes. on Twitter. Yeah, we want to see. I want to see long threads deconstructing. <laughs> yeah, do it. Every issue. Of yeah, come this. at me. Yeah, yeah, bring it. <laughs> All right, let me read it. Let me read another one. Um, All right. Most of her poems, by the way, don't actually have titles. They're just numbered. So usually when you see a title, it's just the first line of the poem. They're like public schools <laughs> in New York City. Yeah, 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 exactly. So this one is number 373 out of, I think, 1768. That's a good um, school. Yeah, it is. <laughs> this world is not conclusion. A species stands beyond, invisible as music, but positive as sound. It beckons and it baffles, philosophy don't know, and through a riddle at the last, sagacity must go. To guess it puzzles scholars, to gain it men have borne contempt of generations and crucifixion shown. Faith slips and laughs and rallies, blushes if any see, plucks at a twig of evidence and asks a vain the way. Much gesture from the pulpit, strong hallelujahs roll. Narcotics cannot still the tooth that nibbles at the soul. Okay, one more. Um, yeah, Narcotics there... cannot still the tooth that nibbles at the soul. Pretty good, right? Written in this like mother, 1850s. This, this motherfucker's spitting. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right, here's a, here's a one I quite like. <clears throat> one need not be a chamber to be haunted. One need not be a house. The brain has corridors su- surpassing material place. Far safer of a midnight meeting external ghost than an exterior confronting that cooler host. Far safer through an abbey gallop the stones a chase than moonless one's a self-encounter in lonesome place. Ourself behind ourself concealed should startle most assassin hid in our apartment be horrors least the prudent carries a revolver he bolts the door overlooking a superior sector specter more near okay now that one i liked in there because that one punctuation wise structurally is very odd and we're going to get to what she's doing with why is it so sort of disjointed feeling sometimes we're going to talk about why eventually yeah and i want to know why she's even writing these yeah it's a good who are these too. for it's a good question all right i'm going to give you i'm going to give you uh one more uh, maybe two more 
because I love it. I love it. All right, here's one of the most classic and one of my favorite. It, it, it's one of the the preeminent Emily Dickinson poems, and for a good reason, I think we'll see. This is number seven sixty four, and I'm giving you the numbers because if you think about her life as starting at one and ending at seventeen sixty eight, this should give you an approximate thing about where this is. This is sort of halfway through her po- poetic career, Ooh. right? Um, my life had stood a loaded gun in corners till the day the owner passed, identified and carried me away. And now we roam in sovereign woods and now we hunt the doe. And every time I speak for him, the mountains straight reply. And do I smile such cordial light upon the valley glow? It is a, it is as a Vesuvian face, face had led its pleasure through. And when at night, our good day done, I guard my master's head. Tis better than the eider duck's deep pillow to have shared. To foe of his, I'm deadly foe. None stir the second time. On whom I lay a yellow eye or an emphatic thumb. Though I than he may longer live, he longer must than I. For I have but the power to kill without the power to die. Yeah. (laughs) It It almost sounds like a riddle. It is. Well, there is this riddly quality to these. And we're going to we're going to talk about I mean, this is that poem is uh, one of the reasons I read it now. And one of the reasons I think it's so well is Emily Dickinson had a capacity to establish a metaphor early in the poem and then completely exhaust that metaphor until it was saying something both deeply in- interior and personal and something hugely u- universal. This is sort of her, this is sort of her poetic superpower among perhaps several poetic superpowers was to completely demonstrate a metaphor. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a that's a case where I think she's doing it. So, um, OK, uh, yeah. And and we've now we've touched on a few of her themes, but she has more than those. Okay, so let's well, we get into the, go we ahead. tease the after dark. What are you going to do for Patreon? Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod on the bonus episode for those folks. Yeah. Okay. So the fact, as I said, that so much of the research about her has been kind of pieced together and been almost detective work. We're going to look further into the claim that Emily Dickinson um, had homosexual relationships or was perhaps bisexual something along these lines um we're going to talk about it in the main episode a little bit but we're going to really kind of drill into it even further and and go into some claims that are a little bit more speculative than the common the common run of things um and then we're also going to go into a speculation that she may have had a very serious illness that caused her to become a recluse um we'll touch on that but we're going to really dig into that in the after dark because it's after dark yeah. for Patreon, patreon.com slash art of dark pod. Please support the pod. Yes. There are annual options now. So if you want to subscribe, you can get a discount. If you do a full year at once, we had our first annual subscription yeah. come in yesterday. Cool. Lots That's of fun. Awesome. Yeah. Support yeah, yeah. the show, support independent media. Oh, we, we do have a blue check now. We so do. on We're Twitter. Verified. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you have to, I think people have to listen to us now. I think that's how that right, works. Right, by law. Yeah, or else they, or else <laughs> Twitter, they have to. It's Twitter law. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. The, Twitter law, there is no Twitter law. The law of Twitter law is no yeah, law. That's right. Mm, that's right. right. Yeah, if it. you don't support, if you've listened to three or more core episodes, yeah. you haven't subscribed to Patreon. Come on. 
please. What are you doing? No, I mean, these no. are four hours plus a piece. And here's the we, thing with the Brad annual. Brad if you've listened to more than three and you haven't supported the Brad, this is a formal challenge. Brad and I want to take you on in a cage match. You against the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 What were you, what were you gonna, did I, mention I was just going to say medicine? the annual subscription. Do I mean we're going to be here in a year? I mean, are you kidding? Oh yeah. Like come we're on. Not going season three. 100%. We're halfway through season three. I mean, it's not like you're going to sign up for a year and then a month later you're never going to hear from no. us again. So oh yeah, we're going to keep doing this for a long time. Beating. We pretty much have season four. We have more than enough subjects just that oh, people God. have asked us to do. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, we're not going anywhere. You're not going to get rid of us that easily. Yeah. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Please support the show. Patreon.com slash Heart of Dark Pod. Bring it on, Brad. What do you All got? All right. So Emily Elizabeth Dickinson was born December 10th, 1830 in Amherst, Massachusetts, and died in the same on May 15th, 1886. So 56 years, uh, not even 50, 55 years old. Excuse me. Now, uh, as I said, Dickinson is one of the oldest subjects we've covered other than Hieronymus Bosch. So there, there is some sketchiness here. And, and because of that, you're going to see me eventually uh, divert off of a strictly chronological telling of her life story. And I'm going to try to I'm going to try to do something interesting, but it's going to be a little uh, spasmodic, as one person once called Emily Dickinson's writing. Um, but first, let's talk about Amherst. <clears throat> so in her patrilineal heritage, her family uh, could be traced back to uh, over 100 years before her birth in the Americas um, when the Dickinsons came to the United States as part of the same great Puritan migration that uh, that brought pilgrims to Plymouth, uh, Plymouth Rock. They weren't on the Mayflower, but it was the same time period where Dickinson's family came. Um, they were they were on the June flower. They were on the June flower. Yeah, something like that. One. Yeah, the, the one next that came one after. down. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> um, at the time of so when a Emily was born, Amherst was still uh, almost everybody in the town was the descendant of a Puritan. So Puritanism was still alive and well in Amherst in 1830. Yeah. They must have partied so hard. They must have wow. got down. They kind of did. Yeah. Did they? Okay. All right. <laughs> a little I, bit. I want we'll okay, to hear. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so you think of Amherst as it's very Puritan and we're going to talk more about what is it, what the heck it even is Puritanism. Right. Um, and be, it was Puritan, but it was also very much emphasis on refinement and education. So if you lived in Amherst, you likely thought that it was very important that your children got a good education. Right. So this was this is sort of the primary uh, virtue or priority of the town. Um, <clears throat> the uh, site of Amherst itself was first visited in 1665 by Nathaniel Dickinson, which was Emily's like fourth great grandfather or something or fifth, perhaps, um, who was surveying the same the area uh, after an agreement quote, I put in quotes, in which a man named John Pynchon bought a strip of land uh, for 1,200 feet of wampum, along with some fabric and a few other trinkets. So this was land that had been purchased from the natives. The reason I'm I'm giving, going this far back in history is Emily Dickinson's DNA practically is in the town of Amherst. And because it's in the town of Amherst, it's in Amherst University, it's in the college as well. Um, it's an old, it's an old, old Amherst. I mean, the town could have been equally been called Dickinson is basically my point. Okay. Um, feet of what? Wampum. wampum. Okay. Yeah. It's a string of beads. 
that the okay. that the that the natives used as as cash basically, but had no value to the Europeans. <laughs> I see. Uh, okay. um, uh, Dickinson's also there were several Dickinsons amongst the famous uh, famous Minutemen of the Revolutionary War, right? So, so this is a this is an old American family that Emily is part of. Now, who were the Puritans? <clears throat> um, apparently, I, and I didn't really know. I mean, everybody's heard this word Puritan, and in my head, I would always always assume, well, the Puritans they're very pure, right? And then you're like, well, what does that even mean exactly? Uh... Right. Yeah. Go <laughs> yeah. on. Or at least they thought they were pure. Like, well, I want to hear. I want to hear what you think a northeastern Puritan is, Brad. <laughs> well, now Brad I've done my Kelly. I've done my research. Okay. Okay. I'm so, excited to hear. This yeah, is gonna so, be good. Okay. okay, so it's not quite accurate to call Puritans their own denomination, uh, their own Christian denomination. Um, it's more of like a sub-denomination. Um the Puritans were true believer English Protestants who believed that the Church of England should be, quote, purified of Roman Catholic practices. So that's where pure comes from in this case, in case you didn't know. Kevin's nodding along. He must have why known would this already. You want, why would you want to purge the <laughs> apostates of the, the things that connect them, that cleave them to the one true faith? Oh, I, I don't know. It seems like you're going in the other direction. It seems to me if you wanted to be pure, you would try to rejoin the mm. Church of England with the Catholic Church. But maybe I'm biased. I mean, yes, we're all biased. So we yeah. all have our biases. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's very it is actually very interesting that uh an Anglican priest can marry and then can convert to the one true faith and remain married. There are really? cases. Only because he's an Anglican, yeah. because he the, came the, from that. Right. The church, if, if and I could be mistaken, but I'm pretty sure that mm-hmm. the uh, the priesthood in the Church of England is recognized by the mm-hmm. the Roman Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So they're know. when when they're talking about purifying it, there there is a lot of there is still a lot of connection. Yeah, so yeah. Anyway. They did they did yeah, they weren't on. successful in purifying it entirely i guess um, right and you'll sometimes hear from people in england uh when you when you're talking about the united states <laughs> and you're talking about the puritans they go oh yeah those assholes they were so obnoxious that we had to get get rid of them so we sent them right. over there right you deal right, with right. them that's yeah, what they'll and I, say and i think there is a little bit there is a little bit of truth to that for sure um they're technically puritans are technically uh included in what is called reform theology i mean they're calvinists obviously um what does this mean what does reform theology mean i know i'm i'm I know I'm given a lot of background and we're not talking about Emily Dickinson, but this is actually important for understanding who Emily Dickinson is. And because we know so little about her, uh, not so little, but we're missing some information about her life. I feel like the more context we give, the richer picture of her we can give. So in reform, this is just from Wikipedia, this little bit here. In reformed theology, the word of God takes, excuse me, the word of God takes several forms. You see, I said the word of God, and I like I got heartburn all of a sudden. It's very strange. Uh, Jesus Christ Himself is the Word incarnate. The prophecies about Him said to be found in the Old Testament and the ministry of the apostles who saw Him and communicated His message are also the Word of God. Further, the preaching of ministers about God is the very Word of God because God is considered to be speaking through them. God also speaks through human writers in the Bible, which is composed of texts set apart by God for self-revelation. Reformed theologians emphasize the Bible as a uniquely important means by which God communicates with people. People gain knowledge of God from the Bible, which cannot be gained any other way. Okay. Now, the strain of Puritan beliefs 
uh, has definitely evolved over time. So the way that the people in Amherst was living, were living, you know, it's 200 years after the Plymouth colony. It's not exactly the way that the pilgrims, the, the set of beliefs and practices that the pilgrims brought over. It's, it's changing subtly over time. And so, you know, it's 200 years, 200 years is a long time for cultural change, really. Uh, in right. some well, when you, oh, I mean, when you consider yeah. that the American revolution had happened, uh, right. They had money now, right? They were probably yeah. There's a lot more yeah. going on. Yeah, sure. Yeah, now I also I saw the witch, so I'm an yeah. expert. I'm an expert in this. <laughs> right. Just like earlier this week, I was an expert in submersibles, and yeah. then for about twelve hours, I was an expert in Russian geopolitics. Yeah, yeah. So I'm very busy on Twitter. Yeah, Prokoshian yeah. and Wagner. Mm-hmm. You know, they the, sure. The, the, <clears throat> the, Right. Yeah. yeah. I know a lot about it. I really actually do think that if you want to understand the origins of like the American psyche, I do think the witch is a, is a good film to watch, but I, we'll just- I, I, I agree with, I agree with you on that. And this is kind of also secretly why I'm trying to tell the history of the Puritans here, because I think also it tells us a lot about America, how America, the origins of American history and politics and everything and psyche really. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So now, Puritan beliefs evolved over time, landing in what today what would be the uh, Congregational Church and its beliefs as outlined in the Savoy Declaration. Okay, but depending on what time you pick up the stream, a Puritan might believe, for instance, that say instruments shouldn't be used in church service. There's no mi- uh, musical instruments. There's no mention of instruments in the Bible, for instance. Um, uh, Puritan <laughs> might believe that there should be what? no icons or graven images, uh, no dancing. Um, early on, some Puritans would, for instance, refuse to bow on hearing the name of Jesus or make the sign of the cross. They would refuse to wear wedding, wedding rings. Puritan clergy wore uh, black attire instead of the white surplice and clerical cap, right? So just kind of setting up some of these beliefs. You know, the cross thing, there is, it, as if you're looking at Christianity from the outside, I can sort of see where you're like, why are you guys always waving the cross around? Isn't that a little like... Didn't your guy die on that? Isn't that a little, you know, isn't that a little morbid? Um, as somebody who was raised Catholic, I understand it. But like, I can see from an exterior perspective that like, that might not be the symbol that you want to focus on. Anyway, <clears throat> by 1660, Church of England had shifted enough that many Puritans, including over 2000 clergy, left the church in what is called the Great Ejection of 1662. By this Oof. time, <laughs> I've had a few of those in my time too. I tell you that's what, right. that's right. Uh, by this time, 1662, well after the hey, honey, I gotta, I gotta pirate. make a great injection. <laughs> Hang on, hold on, hold on over. <laughs> how many uh, miles? Oh, two miles. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> um. By 1662, well after the, quote, 11 years of tyranny, which is what Whig historians call the reign of King Charles I, more than 20,000 Puritans departed uh, Europe and landed in North America. Now, there was this is actually a smaller number than the number of English who migrated to Virginia and the Caribbean at the time. But the rapid growth of the New England colonies is really largely due to this influx of Puritans because the Puritans have a had a very high birth rate and a very low death rate. Um, so they they reproduced very rapidly um, just from a sort of a, uh, a biological perspective. Um, hmm. They probably uh, New England just feels like the right place for them. If you spend a lot of time out there, 
Mm-hmm. You know, oh, yeah. just like sometimes you just sort of feel like a people, they find a spot and it's, and it's like just somehow it's vibe just a for fit. It's just yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, a big, perhaps the biggest importance as it comes to another aspect of this is for the Puritans, it was critical almost as a religious belief that the laity knew how to read because they have to be able to read the Bible. They have right? to get to the Bible. I mean, if they, right. if you can't go directly to the Bible for these folks, it's just a right. nightmare. Right. Yeah. And so this has, this has, you might need a priest right. at that point. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, but he has... might put on a hat. Right. <laughs> right. He right. might but start it... asking for money. Well, that's true. You might. <laughs> uh, but but it has you can see how this would have outside con- consequences, right? Where it's like if it's important that every podunk farmer knows how to read. Well, man, you know, you know how to read the Bible. You know how to read a bunch of other stuff, too. And so um, so this has, you know, interesting, interesting cultural effects. Um, uh, now, here's an important aspect of Puritan uh, theology and this is we're getting we're bringing Emily Dickinson back into it. This is the theology of conversion. We would know this in contemporary American culture as being born again, right? Um, the idea here is that one isn't a saved Christian simply by just having an intellectual acknowledgement of doc, of doctrine, but they have to have something that, in my reading, is like having gnosis almost. You have to, uh, according to this guy, Sidney Alstrom, it is, quote, an effectual call to have an individuated experience with God's promises. This is what actually makes you a, a faithful believer, right? Um, have you ever had anybody uh, come up to you and ask you or if you've been saved? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Many times. Isn't that, isn't that weird? <laughs> it is kind it's of a weird. a weird thing as a Catholic. <laughs> it is. Is it a, ca- a good Catholic person or even a mediocre Catholic person mm-hmm. in America? You go, what do you mean? I don't right. understand what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. I was baptized and maybe right. I was confirmed or not. What are you talking about? Right. Yeah, it's a di- yeah. very different. And this is, this is. I mean, this for, for a certain strain of, of Christians, this is critically important. Um, right. And we're the freaks. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They look yeah. at us as very, as being very strange. Now, um, ah, I, I can't imagine yeah. going life being that wrong, you know, going through <laughs> life being that wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> now you could get, send hate mail to Twitter at art of dark. No, Hey, I'm not saying this. <laughs> get at Kevin. You know, the Kevin. surest way to get to yeah. me is through the Patreon. Yeah. Well, there you go. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Now here's how the, here's how the conversion thing kind of happens. Here's sort of the steps. Um, within Puritanism, right? Um, and I'm not, and because Puritanism has sort of is sort of almost gone now, it, it, it has left its fingerprints. But as a distinct sort of school of thought, it doesn't really have. Yeah, but it's but it's everywhere. Right, right. It is disseminated. Like almost no one would call themselves a Puritan now, but many people have Puritan mentality, right? Sure. Um, um, Ooh, how this can... that that makes it really powerful. Right. That's a, that's when it's real. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So how at this time, and this is not me saying this is, a, I believe, the Sidney Alstrom guy, um, who's a historian of Puritanism, says that um, basically how this conversion works is you have a preparatory phase that is meant to produce contrition uh, for your sins through introspection. Then, of course, you study the Bible and you listen to preaching. And then this is followed by humiliation, which, according to the writer Francis Bremer, is when you would realize that you were helpless to break free from sin and then no matter what you did you could never earn forgiveness right this is this is deep in the, the, because it's what you do is your deeds right 
And Calvinism is much about, it doesn't kind of matter what you do to a certain extent. You're kind of, you're saved by grace and not by, and not by deeds. Right. Um, so at this point, when you realize this, the righteousness of Christ is imputed into your heart and mind, and you may have a dramatic experience where you are saved. Now, by the time of Emily Dickinson's life, I'm, I'm bringing this back to Emily Dickinson. Um, some of the fire had gone out of Puritanism. Um, this isn't, say, the wake of the 30 years war. This isn't the great migration. This is a fairly prosperous community where people have been doing well for a long time. It's homogenous. There's it's not politically dramatic in any real way uh, since the Revolutionary War, which is, you know, what's almost 50 years prior to Emily, Emily Dickinson's birth. Um, so many of these tenets kind of form uh, coalesced into sort of just like a formality, really. It's like, oh, well, you're going to go and you're going to you're going to get converted and go to church every Sunday. Like it's not it, it's not there didn't seem to be the weight of it. Now, nonetheless, there were a great number of efforts to get the young people in Amherst to convert in through periods of revivals. Um, there were, uh, I think, 11 revivals passed through Amherst between 1840 and 1862. Dickinson's formative years. Um, we're going to. And here's, here's the thing. Emily never converted. She would sit in rooms where everyone like converted all of her peer group. You know, they all stood up and accepted and she never did ever. Um, so this is this sets her apart early on. And this is before she becomes a recluse or any of that. Um, oh. I put recluse in quotes, actually, sure. for people who yeah. are listening. Mm -hmm. um, here's something she said. Uh, wait, let me see. Uh, quote, I do not respect doctrines. <laughs> and then two years before her death, Emily would say, consider the lilies of the field. That was the only commandment I ever obeyed. Which I like, I quite like. Oh, she's yeah. got a medal. Yeah. She is. She's hard. Mm. She is intense. I mean, you imagine this sort of slight woman in like a little house on the prairie dress who you know follows all the manners and then you realize that in her head is deep heavy intense violent morbid uh sexual like all of it is occurring inside her head now i'm going to read you a little poem that it, it, and then we're going to kind of stop talking about the religious stuff a little bit and get back more to her sort of chronological biography but this is one of my favorites and we're going to talk about it in depth somewhat um, <clears throat> quote, the brain is wider than the sky for put them side by side. The one, the other will contain with ease and you beside the brain is deeper than the sea for hold them blue to blue. The one, the other will absorb as sponges buckets do. The brain is just the weight of God for heft them pound for pound. And they will differ if they do as syllable from sound um this, <laughs> this is i mean this is heavy metaphysical stuff this is uh interrogating you know it, it's not really calling into question the existence of god it's it's kind of calling into in examination the properties of god as it relates to the brain and to consciousness and to nature and there's an interesting thing she's doing in this poem metrically that i want to point out Excuse me. Um, 
Emily Dickinson would frequently use what is often called hymn meter, which is six syllables on one line and eight syllables on the next. Um, to get a sense of what this sounds like, excuse me, I am, <clears throat> uh, excuse me, I am burping a little bit. Excuse me, Emily. Oh, excuse you're me, Kevin. Right. No, um, I, 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 Brad, I regret to inform you that I am on the Calvinism Wikipedia. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, Tell me why I'm wrong. I don't know anything about Calvinism. No, I don't. No, I'm just like, uh, you know, I, this is setting off all kinds of alarms for me. And uh, <laughs> there, okay. there goes the neighborhood. Yeah, I, I see your eyes glazing over. Um, <laughs> Bring it on, yeah. Brad. This yeah. is very fascinating. Yeah, this is a, a very interesting period in America. And mm. it is important to understand the milieu that she's coming out of. Yeah, uh, yeah. especially I, the life. way that I thought, especially something that's one of our older subjects. I feel like we mm. kind of need to know where she is in place and time, maybe a little bit more so than even some of our other figures. Um, yeah. Now, this poem, the, the Brain is Wider Than the Sky, it's in this hymn meter, this 6-8. And one way you can kind of hear that is Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace is in hymn meter, 6-8. Um, now, let me, I'm going to try, and this might be terrible. This might be terrible, Radio Kevin. I'm going to try to read part of that poem as if it were Amazing Grace. The brain is wider than the sky for put them side by side. The one the other will mm -hmm. contain with ease and you beside. Now, we'll be here all week. Art of Darkness were available for children's <laughs> parties, hymnals, right. Calvinist gather gatherings, Puritan gatherings. You got right. your billy goat uh, with the, the third horn. Yeah, uh, whatever you need. Art of Darkness is here for you. We'll dress up like clowns. <laughs> Man, yeah, no, that, yeah, was quite, that was quite good. I know. I think, you know, even though we're totally tone deaf, Brad, mm -hmm. I think, yeah, you demonstrated. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Now, 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 so you'll, you'll see this in a mm. lot of her poems. She's using hymn meter and the punctuation is very interesting. So and we're going to get into more of this punctuation because she has dashes everywhere. And for a lot of people, these are completely inscrutable. We're going to talk about this more later. But one thing I want to point out, she just took a poem that I think a lot of people who might consider almost blasphemous, right? The brain is just the weight of God. Like, what are you what are you saying? Right. And she's putting it in hymn meter. She's basically making some kind of strange almost alien metaphysical claim about the nature of god and consciousness and she's putting it in a hymn so there i i i i delight in that little turn right i'm very interested yeah. in this i was yeah. interested before but now you have my undivided Good. attention and i Good. promise we will not sing anymore on this okay. episode <laughs> yes i just i had to i had to let i had to get people hearing that because it's 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 there constantly i hmm. i don't know what proportion but it's many of her poems are in hymn meter um interesting Okay, now let's talk a little bit more about the, the Dickinsons themselves, the, the closer generations to her. As we said, Nathaniel Dickinson uh, helped establish the town of Amherst. Now, the first guy I want to talk about in detail, though, is this is her grandfather, Samuel Fowler Dickinson. Um, he is what we would think about, you might think of as a textbook 18th, uh, 19th century Massachusetts Puritan, born 1775, dies 1838. It's pious He's gentle and sensitive with, quote, more than ordinary mental gifts, according to Emily's aunt. He entered Dartmouth and graduated sal uh, salutatorian, 
uh, for which he made a speech around commencement entitled, quote, Nature of Civil Government and Manners, Their Mutual Relation and Influence in Society. Right. Very. <laughs> I fell asleep halfway through that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I am just I'm having flashbacks <laughs> to my public education and how much this set still influences like American ideas about what we are and oh, how yeah. kind of frankly absurd that is <laughs> like it's so ridiculous it's literally like a well, small like, group in the northeast it's like yeah well it's like they, past this shit now like well, let's like they, move on they founded all the institutions so like the rest of her just like yeah i guess that's how you do it i guess i, I guess yeah, all right yeah. just give just give yeah. these irish boat peasant potato <laughs> eating boat peasants right. the same it's right. the same what's yeah. the same difference right. it doesn't matter it's all everybody right. will give you the scar you have them read the scarlet letter i guess right. i don't yeah. care yeah i mean can you imagine teaching this shit now though like how just it's just so it's a it's the the year 2000 is a foreign country now much yeah. less the year whatever 17 yeah. 95 yeah. or yeah. yeah 1775 he's born right sure sure um, tell me again what was his speech about say it one uh, more time <laughs> uh nature of civil government and manners their mutual relation and influence in society that's oh, what his God. that was his commencement commencement how, speech yeah. how's that gonna help me sell cars <laughs> right 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 cars yeah yeah <laughs> now now, after he made attempts at teaching and even being a minister, he, quote, read law and became a distinguished lawyer in the town of Amherst. Uh, with this money and status, he and his wife had nine children, and Samuel built the first brick house in town called the Homestead, where Emily would be born and where Emily would die would be the Homestead, this brick house that her grandfather built. A little later, Samuel Fowler, Fowler Dickinson became instrumental in founding Amherst College, right? So her basically her grandfather started, excuse me, started Amherst College with a couple of other people. I'm going to read a quick thing from this great biography by Richard Sewell, Richard B. Sewell or Sewall, The Life of Emily Dickinson. This thing won a National Book Award, apparently, and it is a monster. People on YouTube can see that this thing is thick. I'm going to read a quick passage from here regarding... Samuel Fowler Dickinson. Um, let me just find it here. All right. Quote, <clears throat> it was the founding of Amherst College during the next few years that was the triumph of Fowler's life and also his tragedy. The challenge was extraordinary and it brought out, brought out all his fine qualities, the strength and character that Carpenter and Morehouse praised. This was the heroic side of his involvement. The tragic lay in what can only be called an element of fanaticism, which, not so clear in the early stages of planning and discussion when he was at his best, is certainly apparent later, when all the resources of the town seemed for a time inadequate to achieve the purpose, and he threw himself recklessly into the cause. It was here that Fowler gave almost all he had and gave too much. His practice and his health failed. Uh, his practice and his health failed. He was near bankruptcy and left, eventually he left the town to take a job in the Midwest where he died disillusioned, neglected, and forgotten. Okay, now, uh, he had children, obviously, as we said, he had nine sons. Um, and the interestingly, there's this interesting thing that happens. It's almost like a curse. A Dickinson, from the history that I've read of these people, a Dickinson should never leave the town of Amherst. Nothing good 
very little good happens to them when they leave town. And this isn't true just of Emily and her hiding in the house, which we're going to talk more about. This is true of kind of all of them. They're all sort of homebodies. They're all like they they the town is is they'll talk some of them about you know tra- having to travel for this or that and all they want to do is be at home they're very amherst is like their spiritual home it means more to them than just a place to be um uh let's see you know for instance emily's dad would die when he leaves town <laughs> he would die in washington i think in washington dc um uh let me read a little bit more about uh, Amherst College, because this is actually kind of important for understanding the Dickinson DNA, including Emily. <clears throat> Quote, from the beginning of the century, sentiment had been growing in the Connecticut Valley for an institution of higher learning somewhere in the vicinity of Amherst. Dartmouth, Williams, and Yale were too far away <clears throat> for the indigent uh, youth of the district, and Harvard was too liberal in its theology for the pious. Various sites have been considered. Northampton, Hatfield, Hadley, those are all right around Amherst. And various proposals were made. One of them was the addition of a professorship to the staff of Amherst Academy, which was like the school. It wasn't college level, it was grade school and high school sort of. And whose uh, founding in 1814 followed had also been deeply involved. It was he who insisted that such a step was inadequate, that only a separate collegiate institution would fill the need. Um, The purpose of the new institution was clear and unequivocal. Its original object was civilizing and evangelizing the world by classical education of the indigent young men of piety and talents. Liberal Harvard was the enemy. So that's how Amherst started. Right. And this gets uh, back to what we talked about on the Fitzgerald episode about how the, the Ivy League and the colleges back in the day had extremely different ideological uh, stances that mattered yeah. a lot. Yeah. It's not like the big one single Borg machine that it is now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're all they're all very ideologically similar at this point. And the differences now are more like, well, I'm I want to study this specific. I want to go into so this go program because yeah. But, yeah, but ideologically they all more or less, more or less uh, the same barge right. in lockstep. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. That those fucking libtards at Harvard. <laughs> Can you imagine back saying in, back that? In. We gotta, back we gotta, in. yeah, right. We've gotta, we gotta have our. But that's very, it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we need a real conservative institution here in Amherst. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 in the little Connecticut Valley. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. Okay, yeah. so let's talk about her father. Her father's very. They just want to. They just want to grill. <laughs> and they want to have their guns. They want right. to grill. They want to tweet yeah. freely at Amherst. Right. Guns. God. Amherst College. Yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> the, a little known fact, it was the Amherst Chuds yeah. was the, the name of the mascot. <laughs> they had to change it later. But they had yeah. to change it for, poli- for political reasons. Yeah, Harvard complained. Yeah. <laughs> now, Emily's dad, Edward Dickinson, eight, born 1803, dies 1874. Um, whatever honor was lost by Samuel Dickinson, as we said, he sort of sacrificed himself on the to, to found Amherst College and sort of li- ended his life in uh, in ignominy. Uh, uh, Edward kind of restored it and more so. He, too, became a prominent um lawyer, perhaps the most prominent lawyer in Amherst, he would become a treasurer of Amherst College and he would rebuy the homestead that his his father uh, had built. Uh, and then he would build a second house next door. Right. So like he trumped his he trumped his father significantly. Um, we need to talk a little bit about the personality of Edward Dickinson, because you have to understand 
Emily lived in the same house with him her entire, basically, entire, well, until he died, almost her entire life, right? She was in her mid-40s when he passed away, and he was living right down the hallway. Um, he, uh, and also, one of the early theories was that the reason that Emily was, you know, quote-unquote a recluse was that her father was very stern and, like, kind of wouldn't let her do things. And this is just not true, frankly. Um now he he was probably he's kind of strict in theory, um, but he and he may have even been kind of needy, and he may not have always been the most encouraging kind of person. But let's kind of talk about him a little bit more. You can call him a Puritan in some ways, but the real important thing is he was really a worshiper of reason as much as he was a worshiper of God. He was super ambitious, super like dedicated to success and and his work um he was a yale guy he graduated from yale in 1823 um and he like as i said he was the treasurer of amherst college for 50 years he would go on to serve in the massachusetts house of representatives and in the massachusetts senate he was a member of the massachusetts governor's council uh he was a whig in the u.s con uh congress he was going to be lieutenant governor, but he decided to, of Massachusetts, but he, he declined a candidacy because I think he wouldn't have been in Amherst often enough for his own taste. Um, and on his death, he was a member of the Massachusetts House. Um, after a speech about the Hoosack Tunnel, he suffered apoplexy and died in his hotel. He basically died on the job as a, what, 72-year-old man. Um, now, he was probably a difficult man to love let's say, uh, and wasn't very loving himself, not very expressive for sure. A friend of his said that Edward Dickinson may have never even truly known himself, right? Let alone anyone else. When he married to Emily Norcross, that's Emily Dickinson's mother, uh, he wrote uh, in the same letter in which he proposed, right? He wrote a letter and proposed marriage to her and said this, quote, my life must be a life of business, of labor, and of application to the study of my profession. I imagine that's the same letter that she proposed to a woman Ooh. in, right? <laughs> oh, whoa. Right. Yeah. Is it right. hot in here? <laughs> exactly. Or am I just a Protestant yeah. American? <laughs> just, just say it one more time, but read it yeah. sensually for me, Brad. Read it. My really life bring it. must mm. be a life of business, mm. of labor, mm. and of application to the study of my profession. Yeah. See, if you, if, yeah. when you read it like that, it see, is a little spicy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's maybe there's a layer of innuendo mm -hmm. that we're not familiar with because we're lazy Catholic. That's Catholics. true. Yeah, so that's true. all of those. It's it's like filthy. This is the dirty words. <laughs> right. That's so funny. Yeah. No. But, but you know he, but he, but he probably is. It's a bit of peacocking too. Like I will. I'm gonna be. Oh, a, I I'm think. Gonna be a I man think there of, was. Mm, yeah, he mm. wasn't a man that he was proud of himself, and he was sure. ambitious, and he and I mean honestly he. He was a killer, you know. They would be horrified at Neats today. These oh, guys, yeah, yeah, yeah. They would yeah. be horrified, mortified. Yeah, 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 not accepted. Um, he so now there is this narrative, especially later. Emily's sister Vinny Lavinia would say how kind of tough and stern he was, but the truth of the matter is that he was very interested in not only his son Austin but his daughters having as good of an education as they could get. Um, he bought Emily books of poetry and science, even though at one point he told her he he asked that she not read them because he was concerned that she might. So he'd buy her a book and be like, just don't read it. Because <laughs> I think he was, as Emily said, he was afraid they would joggle the mind. 
Um, <laughs> but uh. uh, yeah. Um, but here's another thing too about him being stern. Emily would say at one point that he was so busy that he never even knew what they were up to. Like, okay, maybe he's stern, but he's like he's working his he's working ninety hour weeks. He doesn't know what we're doing, right? Um, okay. Now the mother, Emily Norcross. Emily had this to say, <clears throat> quote, I never had a mother. I suppose a mother is one to whom you hurry when you are troubled. I always ran home to Austin. That's her brother. When a child, if anything befell me, he was an awful mother, but I liked him better than none. Okay. So Emily's mother, Emily was not an affectionate woman. Uh, and it is suggested by uh, Dr. John Cody, who wrote author of great pain. Uh, uh, oh, let me just read this thing. Yeah, hold on a second. From the this is not from John Cody, I don't think. This is from Richard Seawolf. Um you've done yeah. a very good job so far, Brad, of kind of taking me back into that time. And I'm gonna I'm gonna be uh candid here and confess that, that this period, the middle of the 19th century, when was she born again? 1830. Okay, so as she's coming of age, the, the middle of the century, getting into the latter half of that century. Growing up where I did in North Dakota, that's kind of where history begins for me mm-hmm, in the mm-hmm. sense of like what we were able to access historically from where I'm from. Yeah. And so, and I've been out East. I've been to the the Mark Twain house. Mm-hmm. That period is such an interesting period in, in American history. Cause you can go and touch these objects. You can go and yeah. see these houses. They're still there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I spent a lot of time in Boston. Mm -hmm. I haven't been to Amherst, but I spent a lot of time in Boston. And I lived in upstate New York, which is Hmm. similarly. I mean, they mentioned they mentioned in the biography towns in upstate New York that are still like little towns. They never. Yeah. 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 So this is like you can kind of reach out and touch this history still, but it's Mm -hmm. a different planet. Oh, yeah. 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 It is. It it isn't. That's right. So. Right. Right. Yeah. A little more about. A little bit more about Emily's mother. This is from uh, John Cody's. Uh, this is this, uh, this is from the this is from the biography, but referencing this guy, Doctor John John Cody's book called After Great Pain. Uh, John Cody sees uh, quote John Cody sees Mrs. Dickinson's Dickinson as a lifelong hypochondriac who must have communicated her fears to her children, an abjectly dependent wife, a fussily compulsive housekeeper, a failure as a mother, especially of her most sensitive child, Emily whose voracious love hunger was never satisfied. Emily interpreted this f- this failure, so the theory goes, as a cruel rejection. Okay, so that's her mother. Now, uh, at one point later on, we'll touch on it again, um, Emily Norcris, that's Emily's mother, suffers stro- a stroke, and for like a decade, Emily is, our Emily is one of her primary caregivers. And this is during the period of Emily's so-called seclusion, right? Um, she's basically taking care of her mother hand and foot. Um, it is not a stretch to say that Emily did more mothering of her mother than her mother did of her. Um, uh, let me see. I have one other thing about her mom real quick. And then we're not going to say much about her because she's sort of a non-entity in a certain way. Um, <clears throat> yeah, here's a, here's and I wanted to read this because this is Emily's words. Emily was an amazing letter writer. I think I said at one point that if you consider the letter as a genre of literature, 
Emily Dickinson is like as good as you can get in that genre. She's an amazing letter writer and sometimes ambiguous and complicated and brilliant. You know, um, <clears throat> here's something that she wrote in a letter to her friend, Mrs. Holland, quote, we were never intimate mother and children while she was our mother, but minds in the same ground meet by tunneling. And when she became our chil child, when she became sick, the affection came. When we were children and she journeyed, she always brought us something. Now we would she bring us but herself. What an only gift. Memory is a strange bell. Jubilee and knell. Okay. One thing that Emily's mother was very good at, everyone said, was funerals. And this meant she was good at organizing them. She was good at being a presence at them. And I thought because of that, this was a good time to read a poem about funerals. Yeah. That is... It's important. Yeah, this, this is a world that, yeah, I recognize somehow. Yes. Yeah. And as we're going to see, it mattered to be good at funerals because if you were born in 1830 in Massachusetts, a lot of people died. You know, not necessarily in war, just a lot of people died young. Life they expectancy were, wasn't of in the course, 70s, but they, and they were also yeah. way more interwoven. Your your third your third cousin twice removed, three you know villages that. over died. Yeah, you you saw them at the uh, so and so's wedding, right? The year before, right, right. And, and you take those connections seriously. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yep. these were yeah. the these were social events as much as anything else. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Now they're so formalities. Right. More so for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm going to read, I'm going to read this poem because I'm going to just sprinkle Emily Dickinson poems in here. We're going to read a bunch of them, but I'm going to kind of throw them in when I feel like they're, I want to read them. <laughs> um, I, I, I like this one. This is again, we want to think about how Emily is unpacking um, a metaphor and, ex and fully, fully exploring it, fully exploiting it. But also I want to, you want to think about how this is disrupting the image you might have of a Puritan girl born in 1830 to a prosperous and prominent and proper family. Okay. Quote, I felt a funeral in my brain and mourners to and fro kept treading, treading till it seemed that sense was breaking through. And when they were all seated, a service like a drum kept beating, beating till I thought my mind was going numb. And then I heard them lift a box and creak across my soul with those same boots of lead again. Then space began to toll and all the heavens were a bell and being but an ear and I in silence, some strange race wrecked solitary here. And then a plank in reason broke. And I dropped down and down and hit a world at every plunge, at every plunge and finished knowing then. Okay. Intense stuff. I felt a funeral in my brain. Like that is, that's a quite an image. It right? feels like something somebody could write now. It does. It feels peculiar, peculiarly contemporary to me. Watch out for those adverbs there, Brad. <laughs> you're you're, you're going you're to feel a funeral in your brain if you keep using adverbs like that, because I'm going to come to Michigan and I'm going like, to throttle you. Yeah, yeah. That is a tough one. Peculiarly. That Isn't is it? tough. That is yeah, a that's hard like one. an acting warm up. Yeah. 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 They're peculiarly. Yeah. We're not going to do it. Yeah, Never mind. I was going to come up with yeah. the whole thing. Okay. Sure. <clears throat> But that, that, that is, is that's quite uh it, it's contemporary sounding it sounds it, like. it really is mm -hmm. yeah yeah um now i and as a, i guess I'll, I'll just set this up now and i'm not going to make a claim one way or the other but i did read i have read 
bits where people say that she was one of the first writers you might call a modernist or a modern. And I'm not going to make an argument one way or the other, but as I read one, maybe that's a question as you're listening, if you're listening to this, you might consider like, is this somehow, does this somehow fit more in the 20th century than it does in the 19th century? And, and how is she getting there? Right. Is she, does she understand psychology that Freud has yet to articulate somehow? Um, I think it's worth considering. Um, <clears throat> okay. Um, we're going to talk about Emily as a child. <clears throat> when she was born, her father's career was on the rise. And as we said, uh, he would be quite well to do. But when it began, the Dickinsons were sharing the homestead, the, 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 the home her grandfather built with another family. It's a fairly large house, but for a couple of years in Emily's childhood, it was four bedrooms shared between 13 people. Okay, so just imagine four bedrooms, 13 people. The proximity seems to have instilled not what you might expect to be in a resentment, but a particular closeness between Emily and her siblings. William Austin Dickinson, called the older brother, who everybody called Austin or Awe. Um, Emily called him Awe, which I, I think is even then is this nice little poetic kind of turn of phrase to call her brother Awe. She spelled it A-W-E. Um, and her, uh, her younger sister, Lavinia, or all called by everybody, Vinny. Um, we don't have a whole lot to go on to try and understand young, young Emily, but uh, there is this nice letter that was written by Emily's aunt to her mother. Now, and this happened, basically, Emily's mother had given birth to Lavinia, had been somewhat of a difficult labor, and so she, was, she needed some rest. And so um, Emily's aunt took Emily as a little girl and just kept, kept her for a little while. So Emily's mother wouldn't have to do the do the motherly duties. You know, this is the kind of thing you would do when you had well-networked families, right? Oof. Yeah. <clears throat> Everybody um, is like, Oh, I can't imagine having a third child is right. so expensive and so difficult. Right. And right. where are we going to fit him in the car? And, da, da, right. da. and it's just like, well, that's not how it used to be. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's almost like everything's been coordinated in a super Malthusian <laughs> scheme to try Couldn't and convince be. you to keep your family small and to remain individuated so you don't connect with uh, your own family, much less <laughs> your own neighbors. And you're more concerned about military operations <laughs> happening in Eastern Europe on a given weekend than you are your own <laughs> local community. Yeah, I don't know where you're getting yeah. this this, I have this no, cockeyed conspiracy theory from, Kevin. I've, yeah, <laughs> I'm probably just I'm probably just a little crazy from no. too much time mm -hmm. on the internet. Mm -hmm. Indeed, I'm going to read this a little bit. This is from the letter from Emily's aunt to her mother. Emily is about three years old, so probably really starting to. She's talking clearly, but she's you know three year. Everybody knows what a three year old's like. And this is what I'd like to think of as Emily's first poem is being referenced here. Okay. <clears throat> this is a letter, again, Emily's aunt to Emily's mom. Quote, I believe I mentioned before that she, Emily, slept most of the way to uh, B, this town they're going to. We heard it thunder several times, but thought we should not have a shower where we were. We stopped at the tavern. Just after we passed Mr. Claps, it thundered more and the thunder and lightning increased. Emily called it the fire. The time the rain, wind, and darkness came, we were alone in those pine woods. The thunder echoed. I will confess that I felt rather bad. We thought if we stopped, we should not get home that night. 
Emily felt inclined to be frightened some. She said, do take me to my mother. But I covered her face all under my cloak to protect her and took care that she did not get wet much. I just like that she called the lightning the fire. There's something kind of resonant about that for me. Now, um, um, very evocative. Uh, yeah, very yeah. strong writer. You yeah. can just, you can hear it. It's yeah. not a normal writer, not a no. normal person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's not. Yeah. She's not. We're going to avoid avoiding cliches like their little landmines on the field of each sentence, each, each mm-hmm. phrase. And mm-hmm. I think people who aren't writers really appreciate how annoying cliches are to someone oh, yeah. who's a writer. Anytime I use a cliche, uh, for example, on the bird website, I'm fully yeah. conscious that I'm doing it. I, right. I'm never, it, I'm, I'm actually not even kidding. Like I, you, you're, people don't realize how these throw, nobody reads your throwaway phrases right. at all. Right. People right. just scan them and, scan and, and just, pass them. And yeah. move past no, I'm them. the, I'm the same way. Yeah. That's like, yeah, you can't, that's like my number one writing rule. No cliches ever. No cliches ever. Yeah. Right. Unless, it's unless speaking, it's speaking is different. Sure. Speaking is yeah, different. Yeah. Having a conversation is different because mm-hmm. sometimes you need it. Sometimes the cliche in speaking is almost like a word in and of itself and it's fine. Mm-hmm. But like in writing, no ever cliche. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. Um, now, there are a bunch of references uh, to continuing on a little bit about her childhood. Again, we don't know a whole lot. There are many references in her poetry to being a little girl to um, the point that she seems to kind of treat it as like an archetype, like as a little girl, you know, treating it like and you're not clear if she's talking about herself or little or sort of occupying the character of that of a little girl for sort of poetic purposes. Um, uh, yeah, let's see. Um, let me read a poem. When in doubt, read a poem. This is from this wonderful. We are by the poem way, respecters on Art is, of Darkness. What this is this? Is what, what do you have? This is what we're reading for a book club. Ah. Emily Dickinson. There's other editions that looks different. This is the the essential Emily Dickinson with the introduction by Joyce Carol Oates, JCO. Um, okay. Yeah, this and the is... book club is for Patreon, patreon.com slash art of dark pot. If you go to the website, there is a link. Uh, it's called Bookends, the book club. And that'll be on Zoom. If you want to hang out with us live or listen to it, we're going to do that on, what are we doing? What day? Looks like July 9th. That's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. I can't wait to read these poems. Yeah. I'm already yeah. sold, Brad. Yeah, already good. Sold. Good. Mm-hmm. Here's another mm-hmm. one. This is poem 613. <clears throat> they shut me up in prose as when a little girl, they put me in the closet because they liked me still. Still could themselves have peeped, could themselves have peeped and seen my brain go around. They might as wise have lodged a bird for treason in the pound. Himself has but to will and easy as a star, look down upon captivity and laugh. No more have I. Okay, that's a, kind of a strange one, right? But we've got this image of the they shut me up in prose as when a little girl, they put me in the closet. Okay, now there's no evidence anybody put her in the closet, but she's playing on this con- conception of being a little girl. Yeah, but they may have put her in the closet. Too. They might have. I mean, this was have. a period where uh, you're you're acting out, you're out of control. It would have been like sitting in the corner, mm-hmm. for sure. You never yeah. had your family never shoved you into a closet or or. I mean, they did, not not that specifically, but sure, but yeah, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, well, you're anyway. like I said, a house of thirteen people in four bedrooms. At some point, it's going to be like, hey, uh, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> 
Shut the fuck up, Emily. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Get in the closet. <laughs> yeah. We all yeah. love you and you're sweet, yeah. but really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for sure. Yeah. Mm. Now, uh, age five, Emily attends the primary school, which was directly across the street from them. Um, and then at the age of 10, she begins at Amherst Academy. Amherst Academy is the school that you go to, right? It's, it's, Amherst College came out of that, and there was a very close relationship between the two institutions. Um, not only were the Dickinsons intimately involved with the school, but so was another figure, Noah Webster of Webster's Dictionary, the daughter of whom was a good friend of Emily. Damn, that guy literally wrote the dictionary. He did. He did. <laughs> Damn. And Emily I, was can you imagine, good like, friends hanging with out his with... daughter. Oh, wow. Jeez. Yeah. 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 Um, that, yeah, they, um, that must've been a great hang. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure he's not like pedantic or anything. Sure. Just that real be annoying. Yeah. And, real chill. Yeah. 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 Uh, we were doing bong rips with Webster. <laughs> Can you imagine? Uh, uh bong. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that it should be spelled with a, yeah. Is it a H N G R? rips yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, that put what okay that would be a great episode would be noah the, webster yeah webster and like how does that even yeah i don't know anything about him really begin? i yeah. guess you begin with the a's yeah you start with the a's and you just keep you going start you get to with z- zebra aardvark yeah and yeah. you don't quit until you you're get at to like yeah the last word zizigy or something Yes, yeah, uh, no, that's that with an S. Yeah, it starts with an no, S. No, no, yeah, z, z, z. yeah. But truly, though, I mean, I think you know, in, in online discourse now, everybody's talking about autism and Spurgs and all of this, and it's like, bitch, you didn't write the dictionary. Somebody yeah. actually wrote the dictionary. Yeah, did that? Yeah. Uh, can you even imagine? Yeah, it was this guy. Yeah, this guy. He had to like okay. nail down everything. Yeah. Oof. Um. Now. Uh, talking a little bit about the association, uh, the association between Amherst Academy and the college uh, is kind of a cool situation because the academy, um, a lot of the times the teachers at the college would teach at both the academy and the college, or they'd bring a teacher in from the college for like a special lecture. And the the, the fact of the matter is even then Amherst College had some of some like world class lecturers. So there's kind of this interesting situation where you could be like an eighth grade or whatever, and you might have one of the best lecturers in the world on biology come and teach a guest class. Like it's a really kind of wonderful for a small town, a wonderful educational opportunity, right? Um, uh, during her time at Amherst Academy, Emily makes a bunch of makes a bunch of female friends. Um, some of these would last to varying degrees throughout her life. Um, uh, I think we can also see th- there's there's very interesting things kind of going on here too. And some very people who were very dedicated and also young-ish by our perspective, people, you know, Amherst Academy would be run by people in their 20s. Um, so ambitious, smart, and enthusiastic people, right? Running this educational institution. Um, I'm going to read a little bit uh, again from the Richard Sewell biography, um, just because I think this is interesting. Hold on a second. Um, Quote, the instructors. Oh, this is this is the um, this is like the mission statement of the Amherst Academy. Quote, the instructors shall be persons of good moral character, of competent learning and abilities, firmly established in the faith of the Christian religion 
the doctrines and duties of which they shall inculcate as well by example as, excuse me, as precept. They shall instruct their pupils, whether male or female, in the several arts and sciences in which may be necessary or proper to an accomplished education of either. The preceptor shall open and close the school each day with prayer. All the students shall uniformly attend upon the public worship of God on the Sabbath. The tuition shall for the present be $5 in the classical department and $4 in the, in the English department for each term of 11 weeks. Now, this is uh, not from the, 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 the statement, but Richard C. Will's words, quote, Besides the religious observation uh, observances here indicated, the students were expected to attend Bible class Saturday evening, but the degree of piety seems to have been no more than Emily was used to from daily prayers at home. The college, many of whose, who, uh, whose students were destined for the ministry or missionary work, was much more evangelical than the academy. If the world began about uh, this time to hold a predominant place in Emily's affections, part of the reason was the rich and humane education she was receiving at Amherst Academy. Okay. And this um, is what we, this would become Amherst College. Um, Amherst College and Amherst, yeah, Amherst College kind of grew out of Amherst Academy, and then they remained related to each other. Yeah. Do you sure. want to know what their annual uh, tuition, room, and board was for 2022-2023? At Amherst kids. College. Yeah. What do you think? You want to guess? 60, 60 grand. $80,250. Wow. That's a good school. That is a good school. Wow. But they do apparently meet the full demonstrated need of every admitted student. It's a very, it's a very competitive liberal arts college. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. It's one of the, with this day. Yeah. That is a pricey school. That is a lot of money. It is for a year of school. Yeah. Ooh, doggy. Four mm-hmm. years. I mean, you're talking you're, fully education, you know, four to five, half a million dollars almost. Uh, more than that. Well, for four years, it'd be 30, 320 and change. But um, yeah. anyway, one Ooh. thing they did, one thing they did at Amherst Academy was uh, almost on a weekly, uh, this is in Lives Like Loaded Guns, an- another biography. There's like 15 Emily Dickinson biographies, by the way. And of course, I did not read them all. <laughs> um, in Lives Like Loaded Guns, which is one of the more recent ones, um, it's noted that there were performances at Amherst in which students would basically read some bit of writing. It could be somebody else's writing or one of their own pieces. And Emily actually was sort of noted for her prowess at this time and teachers would sort of indicate like she's a master like these are unusual and incredibly well done and she's really something special this was noted when she was like 12 um now and while she's at amherst academy um there are a few specific adults that she encounters who i want to pay a little special attention because it's going to reflect partially what her education was like and what she knew she's for her age for someone who didn't finish college somebody who only made it in schooling till they were like 18 years old she was very well educated um one of these people is leonard this guy leonard humphrey he's the principal of the academy for a time quote a man of rare talents and great promise uh he wasn't a whole lot older than than emily he was i think 25 when he was the principal of the academy Emily and Leonard became something like friends. Uh, there was a, a a convivial intermixing of faculty and students was encouraged. So this isn't that unusual. Um, he was perhaps the first person that Emily referred to as master. And there are some other figures she would refer to as master 
or she would refer to herself as their student or their scholar, or she would refer to them as tutor um, in, ca in capitalized letter. And this meant she had marked them off as somebody specific. She says in a letter around this time to one of her girlfriends, she says, you know, I'm always falling in love with my teachers, right? Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so, she would love Metallica. Master, master, <laughs> master of puppets are pulling your strings. <laughs> Could have been a little Emily Dickinson piece. A lesser, lesser Emily Dickinson poem. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, another man that was in her sphere in this time was this guy, Reverend Professor Edward Hitchcock. Uh, one time president of of Amherst College. He is actually a, a notable influence, in my opinion, and in the opinion of Richard Sewell. I'm not coming up with this myself. Um, here's a little quote. <clears throat> Hitchcock was a remarkable man, the pace setter of Amherst, man of God and man of science, who inspired a whole generation with a love of nature that combined a sense of its sublimity with an accurate knowledge of its parts and processes as far as the natural day sciences of the day knew him. His early history is a fascinating story of a born scientist gradually becoming a devout apologist for revealed religion, but never once relinquishing his dedication to the discovery and propagation of scientific knowledge. Coming to Amherst in 1825 from Benjamin uh, Silliman's laboratory at Yale, Hitchcock was largely responsible for attracting the science faculty that put Amherst on even terms with Harvard and Yale and opened up such unusual opportunities for students in Amherst Academy. He was also part poet. So you can see as somebody, the captain of the ship of the Amherst educational enterprise, this all of these things, I think, for people who already know Emily, and, and I think for people who are going to know her through this episode, you can see how this resonates with the material that Emily will find to work with in her poetry. Time for another poem. Okay. Um, I gotta say, this is making me really nostalgic for the Northeast. I, really? <laughs> yeah, man, I... I lived in New York for quite a while. I traveled mm -hmm. a lot, Maine, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, upstate New York, Connecticut. It's a very storied, historical part of the country. There's mm -hmm. a off, like as an American, mm -hmm. there isn't really a place in the country that has as, quite as much history. Oh, um, correct. Yeah. Because yeah. that's where it began. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So I'm going to read the falls gonna... out there. The falls out oh, there are gorgeous. staggering. Yeah. yeah mind blowing. Yeah. Oh, mm -hmm. We get those in Michigan too. <laughs> yeah. So we get them in Minnesota too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. becoming more and more Michigan, Michigan boy as I get older. It's weird. Oh, um, yo. I, I, yeah. Please. Uh, yeah. Brad, have you decided yet what our uh, Art of Darkness live subject I, I is going to be for I Michigan? Haven't. I have. I'm going to keep bothering you. 2024 yeah. Art of Darkness Live, Detroit, yeah. Michigan, Detroit, Michigan, sometime in sometime in the spring. Brad has to pick details a to follow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stay tuned. Um, okay, so I want to read this poem because I think it reflects um, the scientific um, and spiritual nature of Emily's sort of interests, the ways that she's trying to bring these things together. It should be noted too that Emily Dickinson was, especially in her younger years, she was an obsessive. A collector and cultivator of plants. You can even buy a book that is a reproduction of her herbarium, which included she had pressed plants in a booklet with like little Latin des uh, names describing them. You can buy the you can buy a copy of this book. Um, she had apparently a wonderful green thumb and a beautiful garden for a time. Um, but this poem I'm going to read, I think, shows you how she's bringing working these things together. This is poem 1241. 
The lilac is an ancient shrub, but ancienter, ancienter than that, the firmamental lilac upon the hill tonight. The sun subsiding on his course bequeaths this final plant to contemplation, not to touch the flower of Occident. Of one corolla is the west, the calyx is the earth, the, capsule burn, the capsules burnished seeds the stars. She's sort of metaphorically this is that and structuring everything and the whole universe is plants and the plants are the uni- are a representation of the universe all of these things um <clears throat> okay i'm gonna give you quickly a sense of what kind of work was expected of her at amherst academy so again I'm, I'm trying to stress the fact that she was well educated for for how abbreviated her education was in some sense <clears throat> quote the um the curriculum that awaited Emily when she entered the academy at age nine was varied and interesting, well beyond the reading, writing, and arithmetic we associate with those supposedly unenlightened days. Hitchcock, the guy we mentioned just a moment ago, Hitchcock's influence was pervasive. Almost half the studies Emily spoke of particularly and always with enthusiasm are scientific. In May 1842, when she was 12, she wrote Jane Humphrey, I am in the class that you used to be in in Latin. Besides Latin, I study history and botany. I like the school very much indeed. Three years later, she boasted to abide a root of her four studies. They are mental philosophy, geology, Latin, and botany. How large they sound, don't they? I don't believe you have such big studies. And she declared, we have a very fine school. Except for the required Wednesday afternoon exercises in composition and declamation, one of which was the occasion of her first recorded witticism, uh, Oh, it's not that interesting. We'll skip that. There's no way of knowing precisely what courses she took. Other studies offered in the second division for the younger students in the, quote, English department were history, geography, grammar, arithmetic, natural history, uh, physiology, English. Uh, What was meant by English apparently was analysis of Cooper's task and uh, Young's night thoughts and exercises in composition and orthography based on Ebenezer Porter's rhetorical reader and the New Testament. Right. So I say this all to say this was intense school to be in, but she apparently liked it quite a lot. And and she found this to be fertile ground for her imagination and for her. uh, She found it stimulating, frankly. Um, Okay, so now after this, after her time at Amherst, now, again, I want to I want to, you know, reiterate as this is going on into the teenage years, a lot of her friends are, quote, converting. And while she was, uh, this becomes even a bigger deal at Mount Holyoke, where she would go to college briefly. So September of 1847, she attends, she begins to attend Mount Holyoke, uh, 15 or 20 miles from her home. She was there for two terms, 10 months in all. And um, the reasons why she left are varied. (laughs) Um, some people say she was ill. Some people have said that she, um, she bristled at the discipline and didn't like the teachers, which to me does not seem to actually be true. Um, again, other people have made the claim that her father did not want her to be that far away. Some people say that she was simply homesick. We're going to talk a little bit more about her reasons for leaving college in the after dark, but suffice to say that she was only there for about 10 months. Now, Um, So she comes home in 1848 at the age of 18. She has a fairly normal young adulthood, right? We hear all these stories. She's the recluse. She would later on be called the queen recluse by one of her correspondents. But age 18, 
she's got a fairly normal young adulthood, which would mean for a young woman at that time, you're either going to become a teacher or now she's kind of dropped out of the educational role. So that's probably not going to happen. Or you're going to get married. That's probably what's going to happen. Now, <clears throat> she had boys were courting her for sure. And she seems to have quite a busy social calendar in her uh, late teens and early 20s. Right. You tweeted this. You said when you realize famously reclusive poet Emily Dickinson had a busier social calendar than you do. <laughs> right. Yeah. Is that okay? Yeah. yeah. It's like she's, yeah, she's like a normal, smart, but normal, just like a normal young adult, really. Hmm going to little parties and little gatherings. And it's kind of a small town, but it's fairly yeah. sophisticated for a small town. Hmm. Um, and she's in the sophisticated set, right? Her father's the most prominent lawyer in town, right? So you can imagine. Um, uh, I actually cannot. Well, yeah, <laughs> I yes, can't. Same. <laughs> you lost me about 20 minutes ago. I can't yeah. hang with any of this. Yeah, uh, no. Now, now <laughs> yeah. I want to I want to put a put, kind of put a note. I just want to read this bit of this letter because it's so good. Later on, we're going to talk more about this. She has a correspondence with this guy, Thomas Wentworth Higginson. And in one of her first letters, this is in 1862. So this is years down the road. But I want to I want to put this in your mind when you think about. On the one hand, at 18, 19, 20, basically a normal young adult. On the other hand, when she's in her 30s, she's writing this letter to this guy. <clears throat> Quote. I had a terror since September, I could tell to none. And so I sing as the boy does by the burying ground, because I am afraid. You inquire my books. For poets, I have Keats and Mr. and Mrs. Browning. For prose, Mr. Ruskin, Sir Thomas Brown, and Revelations. I went to school, but in your manner of the phrase, had no education. When a little girl, I had a friend who taught me immortality, but venturing too near himself, he never returned. Soon after, my tutor died. And for several years, my lexicon was my only companion. Then I found one more, but he was not contented I be his scholar. So he left the land. And this bit of this letter and, and, and other stuff as well has suggested to people that she, around 1862 or in the years immediately before, she suffered, suffered some kind of, quote, love catastrophe. And we're going to get more into that. Um, because... From here, what I want to do is <clears throat> instead of trying to tell the strict story, I want to I want to tell the story of Emily Dickinson through the various um, reasons that have been stated for how reclusive she was. Different things people have said for why did she escape to the room in her father's house and quote. And some people think she never left the room, which is not true. Um, the. The level we're going to see what the level of how reclusive she actually was, uh, was <laughs> it's more significant, uh, than an average person, but it's also not, um, somebody who has just locked themselves in a room and thrown away the key. It's somewhere in between the two, but, but it still requires a little bit of explanation. It's, it's significant enough that it's worth trying to explain. Yeah. Tehran was a bit reclusive by mm -hmm. this measure. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. A good, that's so a good she way just like to hang out in her room. Uh, that's that's a lot. That's a lot of it for sure. For sure. It wasn't a case yeah. of close the door, feed me through the door. Right. Not yeah. that kind of a thing. Okay. I, there were times when that was the case where she had the servants feed her through the door, supposedly. But a that lot of this is sounds murky. kind of awesome. I would like that. <laughs> yeah. I'm prepared yeah. for that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. so so now 18. 
it, there's a little bit of a timeline. It doesn't happen all at once either. It's not like she shut the door one day and that was it. Um, throughout the 1850s, it was sort of gradually becoming less involved in social engagements. Um, and then around 1862, it seemed like she kind of stopped or, or after 18, shortly after 1862, she sort of stopped seeing uh, visitors uh, unless there were people she had deliberately asked to come. And then uh, by 1867, she was supposedly almost never speaking to anyone face to face, supposedly. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then in 18, by 1874, what comes is what's called the immolation in white, where she apparently started to wear nothing but white clothing in 1874. Um, Im immolation in white? Yeah. She, is that I her think that was, phrase? I think that was a phrase she used in a letter. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and here's, here's one little bit, 1868, which is in the midst of this process happening. She wrote in a letter to Thomas Wentworth Higginson, could it please, uh, he, and we're going to get more about him, but this is a man who was a editor at the Atlantic who had asked her to come visit him. And she had written back, could it please your convenience to come so far as Amherst? I should be very glad, but I do not cross my father's ground to any house or town. So that was like her, I don't go anywhere. Right. Okay. Now, um, oh, let's give a let's give another. I, I love this bit of letter so much, and I'm going to read the rest of it later. Let's see. I, I, what I haven't done is painted a picture of what she looked like. Now, there are only two images of Emily Dickinson. One we're going to talk about more in the after dark. The one is the classic one that you'll see on the cover of any book about her. I mean, I, I literally have it on the cover of two books right here. Um, it's a daguerreotype. She's 16 years old and it's been discussed about how sort of stern and strange and uh, rigid she looks. But one has to remember a daguerreotype is not a snapshot. These things take a long time to develop. So you have to hold a pose that you can hold. You can't like, right. You can't you hang can't, on. Like, hang on. Yeah. Right. That dead would be air. your dead air, dead air. <laughs> Yeah. I'm holding a pose. If you right. if you got to get it to YouTube to <laughs> yeah. watch us, watch me hold the pose. Yeah. I'm trying to figure yeah. out. Here we go. A yeah. very serious artist face. Right, right, right. <laughs> so how long would so, they have to hold these? Well, that's a good question. I'm not sure, but I, my understanding is like several minutes, which is a long, time, a long time to try and hold one spot. So that's yeah. why you, people you don't see people with big smiles on their face because you have to. You have to stay in a position you can actually keep. And so then you look at the photo and like, oh, she looks it so It starts serious. to look creepy. It would right. look creepy if you were trying to smile for that long. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And and she's 16. I save that for the kill room. <laughs> yeah. 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 Now here's now here's something she so somebody at uh, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, who, again, we're going to talk about in more detail shortly. He had asked her for a portrait. They had a long-term correspondence, and he said, can you send me a portrait? Were there romantic implications to this? It's a little hard to tell. Um, however, this is what she said. Could you believe me without? I had no portrait now, but am small like the wren, and my hair is bold like the chestnut burr, and my eyes like the sherry in the glass that the guest leaves. Would this do just as well? This is how she describes her appearance, right? Beautiful little, it's not quite a poem because she's not sort of framing it that way, but it's this beautiful little bit of writing. Now, um, I'm going to read one more poem before we get into 
my next sort of phase of this. This is number 620. <clears throat> and I, thinking about this in terms of imagining Emily going into her room, gradually cutting herself off, though she's still writing letters to people, but she's not going to church anymore, right? She's not maybe going out sitting at the dinner table, table for family dinner. She's not going out to, to shop. She's not, she's not going for walks. 620, quote, much madness is divinest sense to a discerning eye. Much sense, the starkest madness, tis the majority in this as all prevail. Ascent and you are sane, demure, you're straightaway dangerous and handled with a chain. Yeah. Okay. Now. These are, th that's an entire poem. Yeah. Yeah. This, yeah. <laughs> read, it, read it one more time. Sure. Read it yeah, one yeah, more yeah. time. Much madness is the vinest sense to a discerning eye. Much sense, the starkest madness. Tis the majority in this as all prevail. A sense, and you are sane. Demure, you're straightaway dangerous and handled with a chain. She's, she's basically That's saying like, just, listen, yeah. just because everybody thinks it doesn't mean it's right. Doesn't mean that that person's crazy just because, you know, and it, yeah. just in some sense, but, talking but, about but, herself. But, right? I mean, saying it in a very appealing way. Oh, very, it's beautiful. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Sonorous yeah. and. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Now, okay. So now one of the explanations for Emily's reclusion, <clears throat> again, putting an asterisk next to that. And I, I want to, I don't want to, the legend about how reclusive she was is overstating it, but it is a phenomenon. Um, some people have said that the reason this happened was she had some kind of rejection or catastrophe in love. Her heart was broken and it was so broken that she never wanted to leave her room again. That's one of the, that's one of the stories. Now her sister Vinny would later say there was no love catastrophe. What happened to Emily was simply a happen. It just kind of happened over time. And, you know, you start you start by just not going to every single social invitation and then at some point you stop going to church because you're like church doesn't mean anything to me for her right and then you know you stop going to the dinner table and then eventually over time you're just in your room right um but let's talk about the love narrative because i think this will be instructive for for understanding emily the first one I want to discuss, the first person, other person she had a relationship that I want to discuss in this context is Susan Gilbert. Okay. Susan Gilbert is the same age as Emily. She's an Amherst girl. She was an orphan who moved to Amherst uh, where her older sister lived um, and attended Amherst Academy for one semester. She befriended Emily when they were both about 14 years old, and they would be friends at least, if not more, for the rest of their life with varying degrees of contact. And Susan would actually be the chief orchestrator of Dickinson's funeral and read the eulogy at J Dickinson's funeral. We're going to talk about that towards the end. It took for a while for scholars to circle around this relationship for reasons I think we're going to get to here in a second. But a careful reading of letters that Dickinson wrote, uh, along with analysis of the poems, suggests to many, many people that there was more to this relationship than just friendly intimacy. This is where the discourse about Emily Dickinson being uh, bisexual or a lesbian, they all mostly all are tied to this relationship with Susan Gilbert. Now, here's a letter that uh, 
Emily wrote to Susan when they were both about 25 years old. <clears throat> oh, hold on a second. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I am sick today, dear Susie, but I have not been sick enough that I cannot write to you. I love you as dearly, Susie, as when love first began, and it breaks my heart sometimes because I do not hear from you. I wrote you many days ago. I won't say many weeks because it will look sad or so, and then I cannot write. I miss you, mourn for you, and walk the streets alone, often at night. Beside, I fall asleep in tears for your dear face, yet not one word comes back to me from that silent west. It is, uh, if it is finished, tell me. Okay. Now, <clears throat> this was written while Susie, Susan, was engaged to, of all people in the world, Emily Dickinson's brother, Austin. Uh, they would become married in 1856, Susan Gilbert and Austin Dickinson. And they briefly contemplated moving to Michigan, apparently, where she had some family. But they would end up living in a new made-to-order house right next to the homestead. So Susan and Austin lived right next door the rest of Emily's life. Um, this place, this house next door was called the Evergreens. Excuse me. Um, uh, here's another letter. <clears throat> this is while Susan was briefly, this was, uh, I think right before she got engaged, Susan got engaged to Austin. This is while Susan was off teaching math in Baltimore for a year. Excuse me. Quote, this is again, Emily to Susan. Quote, Susie, will you come home next Saturday and be my own again and kiss me as you used to? I hope for you so much and feel so eager for you. Feel that I cannot wait. Feel that now I must have you. That the expectation once more to see your face again makes me feel hot and feverish and my heart beats so fast. I go to sleep at night and the first thing I know I am sitting there wide awake and clasping my hands tightly and thinking of next Saturday. Why, Susie, it seems to me as if my absent lover was coming home so soon and my heart must be so busy making ready for him. Now, these letters definitely seem romantic, like, and there's a bunch more. <laughs> and um, it does seem... I mean, I think, Kevin, we've talked about this on previous episodes where like back in the day, people writing letters to each other, they would use phrases and things that sound more romantic or sexual than we would now. Right. You would write to a this, friend you hadn't seen has in a while. come up before. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You would write to a friend you hadn't seen in a while. Didn't, you know, just like you and I, I'd write a letter to you and say, Kevin, I miss you. Whoa, 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 whoa. Sorry, sorry, sorry. We're not going to read the letters on air, Brad. Yeah, right. Yeah. But people, I hope, catch my meaning is that there used to be a more intense, you would more be more demonstrative in your affections toward a person who you weren't necessarily romantically involved with. If right. if Dan Baltic ever screenshots the things I've sent him, it's over. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. Now, yeah. Now, so so we read those two letters to Susan. Now, let me give you a comparison of the letters she wrote to somebody that no one speculates she had a romantic involvement with. And in fact, the letter was addressed to a couple, right? A, a man and his wife. Um, uh, Dear Mr. and Mrs. Holland. Dear Minnie, which is Mrs. Holland's sister, it is cold tonight, but the thought of you so warm that I sit by it as a fire as a fireside and am never cold anymore. I love to write to you. It gives my heart a holiday and sets the bells to ringing. If prayers had any answers to them, you were here. You were all here tonight, but I seek and I don't find and knock and it is not open. Wonder if God is just. Presume he is, however, it was only a blunder of Matthew's. Right. So she was, she was clearly a swinger. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's just part of a thruple, right? Yeah. yeah people, people are, do tend to get, and I, I'm not going to weigh in on the scholarship right. and whether or not she was bisexual or a lesbian or whatever, yeah. but. And she very well might have was, been. I'm not saying she wasn't. Either. Sure. Yeah. But this was their, like, they were always trying to top each other. And you mm-hmm. could, you could hear the slightest bit of humor. There's mm-hmm. a little bit of humor right. in it. Right. And right. also. Please read the rest of this letter. I'm going to flatter the shit out of you at the top of this letter. Right, right, right. They're they're self-aware. They're way more sophisticated and witty and using their own language. The way that like we go on Twitter and have a a vernacular that if we drop them into Twitter right now, their brains would melt. Our brains melt when when you just suddenly get a letter and you start making all these inferences because language is a living thing. Language is is alive constantly. You're right. Writing each other letters, writing each other every day. Yeah. And I like what you say about the humor. Correspondences. Right. 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 Yeah. I like what you said about the. Yeah, I like what you said about the humor, too, because I think that's easy to get missed when you're doing a sort of academic analysis of things. Of like, maybe they're just like joking with each like not necessarily in these that I read necessarily even, but like just in general, like they could yeah. just be having a laugh, right? Yeah, they could be taking like, the piss. Like, yeah. well, I know, I know, and this is true for a lot of young, young dudes when you're in like high school or whatever, there's a lot of like sort of gay joking with each other, right? Sure. Yeah. That if you were to transcribe and put on a page and sort of read, I never had any classes. friends, so I don't right. really know. Right. But, yeah. You'd be like, yeah. well, young Johnny laugh. Right. Young Johnny said, right. I can't wait to touch your butt. Now, yeah, what does, right, right, right. What does right, this right, mean? Right, right, right. right. Um, yeah. So when it was clearly yeah, exactly. Joke, right? Totally. Of course. So, I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. So it's kind of, yeah, though, it, I never had any friends. Right. <laughs> you can imagine, though, in the mind. I can imagine. imagine yeah. yeah <laughs> a thousand times I've laid my head down on my pillow and imagined, yeah. you know, making a sort of, uh, yeah. I, but, you know, I know exactly. Everybody knows what you're talking about. We don't right. have to over explain this. Right. Right. Yeah. People yeah. take the pit. Yeah. 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 So now, nonetheless, this 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 idea that they had a romantic relationship is 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 widely believed and, and may be true. Again, we're not saying it wasn't the case, but it's not so straightforward. Um again, no, I, I think you had unlo- you unlocked the code is that she was clearly some sort of a crazy swinger, and she was probably <laughs> afraid of her own sexuality, which is why she well, I think a that, recluse. I think I think she did. Yeah, certainly she was a sexual. She had sexual. She had sexuality like everyone else. And the puritanism was all part of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, um, uh, this is kind of interesting. Okay, so now this is about the purported romantic relationship. Um, This was brought to the fore in a 1998 New York Times, or is suggested before this, but but brought up again uh, in 1998 New York Times article by a gentleman named Philip Weiss entitled, quote, Beethoven's hair tells all. This is about the use of forensics as a complement to conventional historical techniques. In this article, there's an interview with the scholar Martha Nell Smith, who was at the time uh, at the University of Maryland and who someone who'd run written one of these many, many books on Emily Dickinson. This one in particular is called Rowing in Eden. Uh, rereading Emily Dickinson. She does have pretty good evidence of a romantic relationship between Susan Gilbert and Emily Dickinson. She reprints a a photograph of a well-worn path between the two Amherst estates, the homestead where Emily lived and the Evergreens where Susan lived. And she cites a number of letters. So, I mean, I read two bits of letters. There's hundreds of these things. 
Um, perhaps more importantly, Smith has used high resolution photography and other techniques to recover bits of letters and poems that were censored by Mabel Todd Loomis. Now, who was Mabel Todd Loomis? This is where it gets tricky. Remember, Susan Gilbert is Austin is is Emily's sister-in-law. And supposedly Emily Dickinson had a relationship with her. Now, who is Mabel Todd Loomis? Whoa, Mabel whoa, Todd, whoa. Go ahead. Whoa. This is a guy named Mabel? Or no, this so, is a woman. A woman named Mabel. Okay. Mabel Loomis Todd uh, is another person. Uh, uh, Mabel Todd Loomis? or Sorry, Mabel? Mabel Loomis Todd. I'll allow it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, Mabel Loomis Todd is Austin. <laughs> That's a name you don't hear very often. You don't. You don't, you don't hear Mabel in, anymore. Mabel is pretty century dope. That's it a is. pretty dope name. It's a good name. Yeah. yeah if you yeah. if you want to if you have a daughter and you name her Mabel right now, that kind of yeah. rocks. Oh yeah, it should it should there should be a comeback for sure. We yeah, got to yeah. bring Ma- Mabel. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Re- return to Mabel. Yeah. So now Mabel is where it gets complicated. Emily and Susan. Susan is married to Austin. Mabel Loomis Todd in the 1880s becomes Austin's mistress. And then later, Mabel Loomis Todd becomes essentially, effectively, the literary executor of Emily Dickinson. So Emily, who is the mistress of her brother and also the arch nemesis of Emily's best friend. It's very complicated. Whoa, they let people have mistresses back then? Not, well, let. Uh, yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> it was a scandal. I mean, there's an entire book on that 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 doesn't really have anything to do with Emily. That's about Susan Gilbert, Austin Dickinson, and Mabel Loomis Todd. Right. Ooh. So anyway, um, after it's getting spicy yeah, yeah, yeah. on Art of Darkness. <laughs> yeah, ah, we got yeah. scandals. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So after Emily died, the efforts to bring her work into light obviously are complicated. At first, Vinny, Emily's sister, tried to get Susan to take up the efforts because Susan had read more of Emily's poetry than anybody else alive, right? Um, and and Vinny had discovered the poems. What I should say, too, is not that many people even knew Emily was writing poetry. Some people suspected it because her letters often had whole poems included in them, but nobody really knew that she was organizing these things very carefully and she had hundreds of poems sitting in a, in a drawer. Yeah. That's good. If you're a poet, yeah. if you're a cyclist, yeah. if you're a vegan, if yeah. you're polyamorous, <laughs> if you went to Harvard. Yeah, just keep it. Just people keep it inside. should know. I went yeah. to school in Boston. Yeah. No, I want I'll bring I'll bring a side to your barbecue. Yeah. Yeah. Here, yeah. Here's my friend. Yeah. Harry. It's not that it's yeah. not that you keep it a secret. It's just it doesn't have to be the second thing you tell someone. Right. You don't have to yeah. lead with it. Right. That's right. the point. Right. Yeah. She wasn't going, I'm em- hi, I'm Emily. I'm a poet. Hi, I'm Emily. Here's my chapbook. Right. Right. If right. you do a podcast. Right. Yes. You don't have to say, hi, listen to Art of Darkness at right. artofdarkpod.com. <laughs> Patreon.com <laughs> slash Art of Dark Pod. T.me slash Art of Dark Pod. Twitter.com slash Art of Dark Pod. You don't yeah. have to, you don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. That would be, that would be extremely annoying. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, let me get, let me go on here. So Susan makes a half-hearted attempt to publish Emily's poetry after Emily dies and doesn't go anywhere and she doesn't do anything about it. Mabel, Mabel Loomis Todd, who is much more sophisticated and actually new publishers in the real outside world took on the effort. Part of what happened though, is 
as Mabel Loomis Todd now has control over Emily's work, she hated Susan. And so if she saw Susan's name, a poem that was dedicated to Susan, that gets just erased right out of there. Oh, get out of here. That's very much like Bukowski, where we had editing happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, there's posthumously. Yeah. yeah, And like Mm -hmm. around the 1890s, they were going to publish some of Emily Dickinson's letters. We're like, well, this one is to Susan. Maybe we just put that one aside. You know, publish suddenly Susan. (laughs) Get get, get rid of her. (laughs) Right. Right. And so this complicate this complicates things for sure. Right. Oh, um, okay, Ooh. now now here's here's a part I'm going to read from uh, uh, this article. Um, uh, what was the article called? Beethoven's Hair Tells All. This is about forensics in in sort of literary history, right? Um, <clears throat> of special interest to Smith, this woman from University of Maryland who wrote uh, Rowing to Eden, rereading Emily Dickinson. Of special interest to Smith is an April 1853 letter from Emily to Austin, her brother, in which seven penciled lines have been obliterated by Mabel Loomis Todd. Dickinson wrote the letter when she was 22 at what was surely a heightened emotional time for the poet. For that spring, Dickinson first became aware that Susan, with whom she had been close for several years, was being courted by Austin. The scraped out lines follow a confession by Dickinson of, quote, a dreadful feeling. And Smith can only imagine the passion in passion in the censored passage. It could be about affection for Susan and might be about the way Susan looks as another letter, letter is maybe even about kissing her. She said, it might be a witness to the passion she had for Susan. It might be angry. I will report whatever I find. I will not try to hide anything. That has been a major problem in Dickinson's scholarship. Okay. So we come away from this suspecting, me personally, I come away from this suspecting that Emily probably did love Susan more so than just a friend, whether it rose to a physical relationship and how to what degree it was reciprocated is a little bit more mysterious. Um, Anyway, before she became secluded, Emily spent a lot of time hanging out with Austin and Susan. She would go over to the Evergreens, the house right next door, and they would hang out. And it was good. They're young, sophisticated people having a good time. Uh, About this, she wrote the poem that has been called Wild Nights, in which the TV show Wild Nights with Emily Dickinson is named after this and this is one of these shows i think there's at least two shows that have present themselves as biopics of emily dickinson's life and they're all about her affair with susan gilbert um and going you know imagining what they could be right in full flower um let me read this poem wild nights wild nights were i with thee wild nights should be our luxury Feudal the winds to a heart in port, done with the compass, done with the chart. Rowing in Eden, ah, the sea, might I by, but more tonight in thee. So it's pretty saucy. Wild, the wild nights are calling. Wild nights with somebody, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Now, oh, now, I've had a few. I've had a few wild nights in my time, Brad. Not, not me. Not me. I'm a bit of a wild nights respecter <laughs> myself. <Yeah. laughs> um, I now, like these. They, they're so tidy and, oh, and yeah. uh, neat. They're very yeah. well. Yes. Mm, yeah. yeah. And I wanted to throw that one in there because it's different than the, all the other ones too. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's much the the line is lines are shorter. It's not him him meter at all. Read yeah. it again. Sure. They're so short. Read it again. Yeah. Wild nights, wild nights, were I with thee, wild nights should be our luxury. 
Futile the winds to a heart and port, done with the compass, done with the chart. Rowing in Eden, ah, the sea, might I but more tonight in thee. Might I but more tonight in thee. Comparing the lover or the friend to the ocean. Mm -hmm. and uh, Yeah, yeah. It's, it's quite, well, it's I've nice. been there. I've been yeah, there, yeah. bro. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, good. Yeah. That's a lovely, lovely yeah. little little poem. Yeah. Mm. Now, whatever her relationship with Susan Gilbert, and let's say that she had some degree of romantic relationship with Susan, it was certainly not the only one in her life. Here are some other ones. The guy Leonard Humphrey, who we described earlier, guy who was, uh, I believe, is a teacher at the Amherst Academy. Um while at Amherst Academy, as we said, she she wrote a letter about falling in love with her friends. Um, or fall, I'm sorry, falling in love with her teachers. One of these was Leonard Humphrey. Um, he had been an Amherst College valedictorian, was an intelligent, lively, handsome man who Emily took quite a shine to and struck up a relationship of correspondence. They wrote letters to each other. And then at 25, Leonard Humphrey died of, quote, brain congestion. Uh, in an entire in, in an unexpected turn of events that shocked the entire community. Okay, what, that's wait, Leonard brain Humphrey. brain conge uh, congestion. They they didn't have I'm not, specific of medical. I'm not going to sleep tonight. What was that poem <laughs> about the brain? Uh, God, the brain. You got too much God yeah. on the brain. Right, something, something. Mm. Now here's another here's another person that she sort of had a Stop relationship with. Scrolling Twitter, you your brain might will get congested. Get brain congestion <laughs> right get right, off right the app yeah. with the touch grass yeah. right 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 yeah um here's another one emily had a distant cousin distant like very distant named john graves who in the 1850s would come stay with the dickinsons remember Emily Dickinson's reclusive turn doesn't really start until the early 1860s. And even then it takes a while. So in the 1850s, she's still a young woman, just kind of doing her thing. Um, John Graves would come to stay with them and was even sometimes left to, quote, watch over the women of the house a time or two when both um, Emily's father and her brother were away. John Graves, being family, you might not consider him a romantic entanglement, but I can't remember exactly the relationship. It's like third cousin twice removed or something. It, it, it's not blood anymore. At some point, it's not really family anymore in terms of rom romance and sex, right? Um, yeah, but you uh, still don't want to ever have to explain that. No, not, not no. today. Then it right. was a little different. No, I, you would people would marry their first cousins and stuff then for sure. sure. It, would, it would be slightly scandalous, but it would still happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. so anyway, might not have been romantic, but Emily really enjoyed his company. Um, and he was, I mean, you even see pictures of him. There's a, there's a picture in this, this book that is basically all of her quote boyfriends. Uh, it shows like each one of them independently. And John Graves is clearly the most handsome. Um, <laughs> also, also very intelligent guy. He's about her age, very capable. So he's not like overly bookish, but he's bookish enough sort of, um, she went to at least one concert with him. She knitted him wristlets. She drank currant wine with him in their home. Uh, and as some, yeah, and as something of an outsider from the Amherst community, she was able. She was he was somebody she could. She was feeling more and more alienated by Amherst, right? But other than John <laughs> Graves, everybody she turned to Damn. was from Amherst. That's a great name for a band, dude. Yeah, alienated, alienated by, Amherst. by Amherst. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that you can rocks. see how you can see how you get one cool 
person comes in and you're like, dude, this place is driving me nuts. Right. Oh, and sure. you can actually talk to them because oh, they're dude. not from there. Right. hundred percent. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Now here's one. Where, critical... where was he from again? Where was um, he, he was, you know, I'm not, I don't know if I actually have it. He was just come not, from from, a, not, not from, from Amherst. Amherst. Okay. Yeah. Right. yeah he's a fan. I think he might've been in Pennsylvania permanent, like his permanent residence. Oh, um, exotic. Visit exotic scenic Pennsylvania. Right. Now, yeah. here's one thing that's interesting about the John Gray's relationship, um, and this will tell us something about her poetry. Um, there is Emily played music, and she, in some time in the early 1850s, there was a piano in the house, and sometime in the early 1850s, she had given up on playing the standards and had begun to improvise. She didn't want to play the old song. She wanted to make it up as she went. Ooh. Um, and she would do this mm. particularly at night when everyone was asleep, right? So let me read this little bit from the biography. I'm sure they loved that. Plink, yeah. plink, plink. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm sure she drove some people crazy. Yeah. Mm. Now, um, I, I'm um, going to say uh, we've had we've done a lot of subjects. We've done what? What? Like this is 52, 53 yeah, 52. ish. Yeah. 52. I mm. like Emily a lot. She's great. Yeah. I'm a fan. Yeah. Yeah, I wish I knew. It's somebody you wish you could know more about, like mm. than is able. You're able to. I like. I wish I could hear these piano improvisations. She's maybe, given maybe me kind terrible. of a witchy goth girlfriend vibes mm -hmm. through history. I'm yes. into that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So now here is a little past. Emily, let's go see the Cure on right. tour. Oh, she would have probably be good. Yeah, yeah, she'd probably, she like, probably the like the Cure. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So here's I'm a little passage. Tearing apart these daguerreotypes of you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, hmm. Here's a little bit from John Graves' daughter. It's a reminiscence, but it's about her father and Emily. Quote, oftentimes during father's visits to the Dickinson relatives, he would be awakened from his sleep by heavenly music. Emily would explain in the morning, I can improvise better at night, she'd say. On one or two occasions, when not under their friendly roof, my father, in paying his respects at the house, would receive a message from his cousin Emily saying, quote, if you will stay in the next room and open the folding doors a few inches, I'll come down and make music for you. My father said in that those early days, she seemed like a will-o'-the-wisp. Right? Okay, here's a little bit more. <clears throat> Emily's letter, and this is not, this is just Richard Sewell now talking uh, Emily's letter describes one of these haunting moments. Okay, this is her letter. And I love this quote. I play the old odd tunes yet, which used to flit about your head after honest hours and wake dear Sue and madden me with their grief and fun. How far from us that spring seems. This is later. She's writing a letter to John Gray is like after he's not coming around anymore and he's off married to somebody. But she writes this. I play I play the odd old odd tunes yet. And when she says old odd tunes. She means her, the music she was making up. She referred to them as old, odd tunes, which I love. Like to refer to your own music as that is, suggests a very strange relationship, right? Now, here's another thing. <clears throat> her particular talent, it seems, was for improvising, and she did it better at night, a clue perhaps to her literary habits, since her letters often refer to her writing when all the others were asleep, right? So, Middle of the night, everyone's asleep, and sometimes she would slink down to the piano and play some old, odd tune that just kind of came to her like a dream, right? <clears throat> Very interesting. Okay, another gentleman that she probably loved, Charles Wadsworth. Okay, 1855, Emily goes on the biggest trip of her life from Amherst. 
This is three weeks in Washington, D.C. with her father and her sister, and two weeks in Philadelphia with the Coleman's, a family of whom her, the, um, the daughter of whom Eliza is one of Emily's special friends. Emily's feelings about the trip are mixed. She is, for instance, inspired by her trip to Mount Vernon. She loved George, George Washington, by the way. And she's char uh, charmed by much of the elegance and grandeur she saw, but she also missed home and comments as such. By this time, Emily has taken on a sense that the world is full of, quote, hollowness and awfulness. The world, the, the man-made world out there has very little interest for it, bears very little interest for Emily. Um, she says in a letter back to folks in Amherst addressed to uh, the children, uh, not sure which children these are, actually, doesn't matter, quote, for one look at you, for your gentle voices, I'd exchange it all, the pomp, the court, the etiquette. They are of the earth, will not enter heaven. There's precisely one anecdote. Um, sorry, that's her, that's her letter. I'd exchange it all, the pomp, the court, the etiquette. They are of the earth and will not enter heaven. There is, from this trip, there survives one anecdote that survives in the family legend. And this is, she's at dinner one evening. Um, she sits beside a judge and they bring out a, a plate of flaming plum pudding, which apparently people used to eat in the 1850s. And was uh, what is, when it's it was like bourbon, and then they light it. It's and, on fire. Okay. Yeah. All right. Cool. Um, All right. And when this was when this was passed to him, she said, "Oh, sir, may one eat of hellfire with impunity here?" Just it's a one. It's the one anecdote from the whole trip. They must have that must have slayed at the yeah, time. Yeah. No. Apparently, it was like the family that would tell it for years. Yeah. Incredible. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> for us, it's like it's, I don't really get it, but that's what like, I mean about language being a living thing. And now mm -hmm. it's like okay, and whatever. Uh, yeah. 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 But for a yeah. young woman to say that at that moment, to a, her to a judge must have been to a judge. You right. Know? Yeah. 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 Um. Mm -hmm. Um. Nonetheless, it is suspected that on this trip, Emily was uh, taken by her friend Eliza Coleman to a sermon by Charles w Wadsworth. Again, I'm setting up. This is another one of her romantic entanglements. He was a famous minister of the Arch Street Pe Presbyterian Church. Wadsworth is one of was one of the most well-known ministers in the, the entire country at that time. A man who's had his own biographies written about him and his free his sermons have been frequently published she makes no Emily makes no mention of hearing this sermon or of meeting him, but they she something she must have because later on she would write a letter to him and strike up a strike up a correspondence. Right. Um, she had no qualms for being a recluse. She had no qualms about writing a letter to anyone. She thought you were interesting and wanted to talk to you. She would just write you a letter. Right. Um, this was the Internet then mm -hmm. it's not yeah. like they I, people had this weird idea that before the internet people didn't communicate now you'd get somebody's right. number you'd call you'd write a letter yeah. it was yeah carnegie, carnegie was a, a telegram a telegram operator yeah and there are it, stories about i don't know how much in the united states but i remember reading stories about sort of victorian england if you were like in london the mail would be delivered to you like five Same or ten day. times a day yeah, you would get for sure. Yes. Yeah, they had they had like a pneumatic tube system in New York for yeah. a period of time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, right. Yeah, very. So so anyway, she strikes up. A, now, it's interesting because she was unconverted, right? As we said, she was she wasn't born again, though. She she it's not like this meant she was an atheist, right? She she was spiritual and believed in God. She just couldn't quite get herself to see herself as a member of the church as it stood in her community. Um, 
yet the pre his preaching probably had a profound effect on her. I mean, again, he's the one of the most famous preachers in the country and, and a bit of a poet himself. Um, he was 15 or 16 years older than her. And she seems based on these relationships we know she tried to have or wanted to have through correspondence. She had a little bit of a thing for older men. Bingo card, um, age gap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 15 or 16 years older. Now, <clears throat> here's a description of him from the New York Evening Post. Quote, his person is slender and his dark eyes, hair and complexion have a decidedly Jewish cast. What? Well, if you've looked. What does that vaguely, mean? He looked vaguely Jewish to this guy. Disavow. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't. I, this isn't my words. I have no idea what you're talking about. The elements of his popularity are somewhat like those of the gifted Summerfield, who's some other preacher. A sweet, touching voice, warmth of manner, and lively imagination. But Wadsworth's style, it is said, is vastly bolder. His fancy more vivid, and his action more violent. Okay. Now, he. I had, like how they're covering. They're they're covering these like these Protestant of obviously yeah. preachers like yeah. they're uh, like a, it's like a it's like a music one act play <laughs> yeah or something yeah yeah, yeah. it's like, it's like somebody playing guitar and it probably right. was it probably right. drew, well yeah. I prefer I prefer Wadsworth to Summerfield you see his action is much more violent. I don't know I don't know Jewy yeah. <laughs> for my taste <laughs> right right right, <laughs> right. now now okay. problem is here's a here's the here's a problem Wadsworth was married okay and this. You know, so whatever the case, um, Emily's niece would late and, and, and despite this, Emily's niece, who we're going to we're going to learn hear from a little bit more later. Emily's niece claims that Emily fell madly in love with Wadsworth um, oh, with the rock and roll preacher, the rock and roll married rock and roll preacher. Yeah. Mm. Um, the letters themselves that she writes aren't entirely clear on her feelings for other than some level of fondness and affection. They aren't obviously overtly romantic. Um, though I she tell did... you what, guys, all this PUA garbage, all this stuff, everything you hear from everybody, none mm -hmm. of it means a thing. The only <laughs> thing you, you got to learn how to do, I am telling you, is to figure out some walk of life where you are performing publicly. Mm. Old stop. It doesn't hurt. Yeah. That's it. Everything else is a uh, is bullshit. Yeah. That is the hack. There you go. Now are. here, let me read you a letter from Emily. I don't think you're wrong, Kevin. Let me read yeah. you a letter from Emily to Wadsworth, or part of a letter. Quote, to thank you is impossible because your gifts are from the sky, more precious than the birds, because more disembodied. I can only express my rejoice surprise by the phrase in the scripture, quote, and I saw the heavens opened. I'm speechlessly grateful for a friend who also was my friends and can scarcely conceal my eagerness for that warbling silence. Okay. Now here's a few facts. <clears throat> That's that a we... letter from her to him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. While her, while her, while. How his... old is she at, the, at this point? This, she would be in her late twenties. I think that was so around it's, so it's, but it's, And never engaged. No. And she's never... writing a married man. Mm -hmm. a, ma a famous Ooh. married man. Right. She's already um, past like spinsterhood at this point. They have a that a phrase. You ever heard the phrase thornback? I haven't heard that. No. He was a thornback at that point. What's that mean? Yeah. Oh, look it up. It's like oh. one one move beyond spinster is thornback. Oh, yeah. I did not. This is oh yeah. To me. If she's if you're if you were in your late twenties, uh yeah. then like yeah, Thornback is the old mystical term for unmarried women in their 20s. Yeah. Huh. So uh, 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 this is just random, but 23 yeah. to 26, spinster, 
26 to 29, Thornback. Uh, 29 to 35, Venus Death Trap. <laughs> oh my to, God. 35 to 40, Lady of the Blade. 40 Lady to 45, Blade. Fanged Dowager. Uh, 45 plus, Terrified Silence, Shifting Eyes. If you speak of her, she will know and she will show you no mercy. Jeez. I don't know if this is just some random Twitter thing, but right. yeah. Yeah, wow. it's, okay. Uh, okay. it's a thing, dude. Yeah. yeah. Okay. They were getting married at like yeah. 20. Young. Yeah, you got 20 was young. like, boom, we're getting married. Yeah, 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 yeah for, for sure. sure. Yeah, there was probably at some point, there was probably like a she missed her chance to do it, even if she was going to sort of at some point. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're um, not going to like, I, yeah. Oh, yeah. Different times. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Now, yeah. here's a few facts that emerged. And okay. yet nothing yeah. changes. No, oh. no, no. Now, here's a, um, the reading from the Sewell bot. Uh, I'm not sure how to say this name. Kevin, how would you say this? S-E-W-A-L-L. Sewell? Sewell? Sewell. 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 Okay, from the Sewell biography. Quote, a few facts emerge that Wadsworth called on Emily in the homestead shortly after his uh, his mother died on October 1st, 1859, probably early the following spring. That he called again in August 1880. uh, That the clerk sent her at least two volumes of his sermons one shortly after his death, by which kindly act the correspondence was begun, that Emily asked for his picture uh, and for the pictures of his children, never a word about Mrs. Wadsworth, that Emily knew so little about him as to have to ask whether he had brother or sister, and that she remembered enough of his conversation to record three brief examples of it. Okay, Um, here is a poem that is thought, is suspected to be about Wadsworth. Um, and his preaching particularly. And I quite like this poem, whether it's about Wadsworth or not. Um, Quote, he fumbles at your soul as players at the keys before they drop full music on. He stuns you by degrees, prepares your brittle nature for the ethereal blow by fainter hammers further heard, then nearer, then so slow. Your breath has time to straighten, your brain to bubble cool, deals one imperial thunderbolt that scalps your naked soul. When winds take the forest in the pa- forests in the pause, the universe is still. Quite like that. <clears throat> okay. Now, I, the next one, the next person, so that's Wadsworth. The next person she was most likely in love with is a guy named Sam Bowles. Sam Bowles. Now, here's the thing. She didn't fall in love with just any yokel who walked by. Right. No, just some handsome lad that happened to walk by her window. Again, Wadsworth, one of the most famous preachers in the country. Sam Bowles, this next guy you're going to see is a killer. Okay. He is the one man machine responsible for the Springfield Republican newspaper. Okay. This is the newspaper of record for not only Amherst, but at the time, all of New England. Right. Okay. This is Sam Bowles, a guy she she purportedly fell in love with. Now, Sam Bowles, how she he came into Emily's um, purview is Sam Bowles, as a reporter and out of just interest, liked to be adjacent to power. And we have to remember that Emily Dickinson's father was a powerful man. He was an elected official in multiple positions throughout his career. So Sam Bowles kind of became friendly with Edward Dickinson, but he was younger than Edward. So he became friends with Austin, who was also a prominent lawyer. Um, That's Emily's brother and Susan, and thereby became friends with Emily. Um, And so Emily actually saw a lot of him 
in person in the late 1850s. Um, so let's see. So now one thing about the Republic, the Springfield Republican, the Springfield Republican, I think still exists. It has a different name and it's digital, digital, uh, element. Um, he was literally, he would sometimes apparently, and it was a daily newspaper. He would sometimes write the entire newspaper. <laughs> like could you It's literally just like one dude substack. Yeah, right. seriously. Yeah. But it wasn't just like a weird broadside. And I'm the weatherman. And right. It's, it's right. Looking, yeah, I don't exactly. know. It's looking yeah. a little cloudy today. Right. Right. I think it might rain. Right. Right. And, oh, right. I don't know. And then here I got the classifieds yeah. over here. And yeah. uh, Miss, Miss Marble is selling her marbles. Right. So <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. He was, I love he that. Was a, I love that yeah. old timey Americana. Right. Kinda, yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. It's yeah. beautiful. Cool. Now, here's yeah. here's something interesting. I got kind of interested, like the Springfield Republican, huh? And there was a footnote in this book. And I was sort of like, what is going on there? What is what? It, what is what do they mean? Why are you calling a newspaper the Republican? That's kind of as somebody now caught up in American politics circa 2020. You, like, you mean somebody with an IQ, like an effective IQ of 70? Yeah. <laughs> you mean? Somebody, somebody who yeah. is it do, literally doesn't know what words yeah. mean. Yeah. But hold on. Yeah, you mean is, a normie? Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. But there's, this is interesting. Okay. Now, uh, what the question, does it have anything to do with the Republican party? It shouldn't have to, right? But it does. Okay. 1855, Sam Bowles called for the founding of a new party that would abolish slavery, suggesting it be called the Republican Party after the newspaper. Oh, wait, okay. is the part, wait, wait, so is, is the party named after? OK, go on. Emily's boyfriend, sort of, gave the Republican Party its name. And according to Richard Sewell, uh, though you won't find this on the Republican Party's Wikipedia page, the party was founded in part in Edward Dickinson's Washington, D.C. office. So her dad was like the first of like a half dozen officially Republic official members of the Republican Party. Huh. Isn't that just in, just an interesting footnote? There are right? only 25,000 <laughs> to 50,000 people alive right. at a given time, and right. we cover all of them on yeah, Art of exactly. Darkness. Yeah, I just this, thought that was... I, I didn't expect this to go that direction. You know, right? isn't that funny that one of the two major American political parties took its name from a piece of mass media? Yeah, that is funny. That, isn't that interesting? That doesn't interesting. that? It's very curious. I don't think it means anything becomes, at all, Kevin. Doesn't mean anything. That yeah, it just <laughs> the newspaper is what the party is called. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That couldn't point toward anything mm -mm. essential and important in terms of understanding how power yeah. and government operates. Of course not. Nothing's connected to anything. Nothing You're nothing just, means anything if anywhere. If we've learned anything we, in we this show. We try not to connect anything to anything. <laughs> and by the yeah. way, because we don't want to, we're, we certainly don't want to sound like a couple of conservatives no. brad the no. party's flipped people yeah. remember the republicans the 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 republicans were the democrats of no yesterday. we know they're the republican i mean part of the impetus according I, i'm no expert in this was the calling for the abolition of slavery so yes um here's mm. a description of sam bulls because this is i think this is a nice this is from a friend of his back in the day 
Sam Bowles, quote, Sam Bowles was a man who could unite an entire and lifelong loyalty to one woman, the partner of his life, the mother of his children, and the mistress of his home with intimate and mutually helpful friendships with other women. His closest intimacies were the women of a characteristic New England type of fine intellect and unsparing conscience conscience and a sensitive nervous organization whose minds have a natural bent toward the problems of the soul and the universe whose energies lacking the outlet which business and public affairs give to their brothers are constantly turned back upon the interior life and were at once stimulated and limited by a social environment which is serious virtuous and deficient in gaiety and amusement there's naturally developed in them high mental power and almost morbid conscientiousness while especially in the many cases where they remain unmarried Emily, the fervor and charmer of womanhood are refined and sublimated from personal objects and devoted to abstractions and ideals. They are platonic in their attachments and speculative in their religion, intense rather than tender and not so much soothing as stimulating. By the influence of such women, Mr. Bowles' later life was colored, his views were broadened, his thoughts refined, his friendships exercised in offices of helpfulness and sympathy. So my point, the point I'm reading this, Sam Bowles is a powerful attractive, charming, charismatic man who goes around town and he's friends with all all kinds of people, including a lot of women, though he's maybe married. And Emily is mostly sitting alone at home and this guy occasionally shows up. I mean, he, she kind of falls in love with him and who, who can blame her, right? Now, here's another aspect of this. <clears throat> so the correspondence between them is 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 really quite something. Let, let me actually just read one letter that she wrote to him. Now, here's this, here's something crazy, by the way, that you uncovered yeah. this. This is fascinating. <laughs> I'm, I'm on the uh, Republican wiki right now. I'm reading yeah. about Sam Bowles. Oh, yeah. And it's a, you know, transformed the paper into the largest circulating daily in New England by the mm-hmm. mid 19th century. Yep. And he is remembered for his influence on abolitionism. And the Republican Party, mm-hmm. as well as his mantra for journalists, put it oh. all in the first sentence. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, you probably should as a journalist. This right? is, we, we've just pried open, like, one of the hidey corners of American history here. Yeah. Where yeah. you're like, oh, they didn't teach us anything in school. We didn't no. learn <laughs> nothing. Right. We learned not not a dick in school (laughs) you know yeah they just sort of gestured us in a vague direction Mm -hmm. Ah, yeah there's these there's these two parties and they've existed since time immemorial don't worry Uh, about it i don't know (laughs) it says here in the books that this is our land now right and uh, this is but it also says that this land is my land and it says this land is your land yeah it says right here this land yeah made for you and me right right couldn't couldn't be any other way it's just that's and this machine kills fascists right and i guess you maybe one day you'll work for bill gates i don't know (laughs) okay here's a letter to mr bowles oh here's one thing almost no letters to emily survive to emily there's a lot of letters emily sent none of the letters to emily survive because she instructed her sister to burn them all and her sister did yeah. Now, here's a letter to Mr. Bowles, and this is how strange Emily is, but wonderful. Dear Mr. Bowles, thank you. And then she gives him a poem known, uh, known as poem number 185. Faith is a fine invention when gentlemen can see, but microscopes are prudent in an emergency. 
Okay. And then she continues, you spoke of the East. I have thought about it this winter. Don't you think you and I should be shrewder to take the mountain road? That bareheaded life under the grass grass worries one like a wasp. The rose is for Mary, Sam's wife. And then she just signs it, Emily. Now, there are a number of letters, um, but I read a bunch of them and I'm not going to read, you know, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read any of the other letters between Emily and, and, and um, Sam Bowles. But there are times where she does seem sort of like an obsessed girl you know remember that meme with the crazy quote-unquote crazy girlfriend excuse me with the bugged out eyes there were moments where i felt like that with her where she's just sort of intense i mean you've got this sort of genius but sort of love struck and and possibly sex starved woman who's writing these letters to this powerful charismatic man she gets a little she gets a little crazy um and, and not no judgment of that it's just you can you can kind of imagine it right and his Oh boy, can I? Yeah, right. And his yeah. responses to her are friendly, but don't seem to be particularly encouraging of this line, as you might imagine. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, now, and he, by, I imagine too, by the decorum of the age, he has to respond to her. You can't just not respond. Plus, he's he wants to be friends with Edward, her father. He That's wants to what be I friends mean. With her. Right. Right. So he, yeah. she, he can't just not respond. Now, sure. She you was sending ghost. Don't ghost to Dickinson. Right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Now here's another thing. Okay. So let's presume that she was in love with him as many biographers seem to think. There was another thing that she was interested about in him about. He happened to be the one man machine behind the largest newspaper in uh, New England, which happened to, among other things, publish poetry. So why can't she be in the Springfield Republican? Can you imagine? Like where you're, you pick up the local paper. Yeah. You're going to pick up the, it's, it's uh Thursday morning in America. Yeah. The sun comes up mm-hmm. coffee, coffee costs a dime. Right. <laughs> right. For right. your, your large iced Americano costs a dime and mm-hmm. you pick up the paper and you're looking at property. Yeah. The internet never <laughs> happened. The internet never happened. You're looking at property. And uh, the the three bedroom, one bath down the street is going for forty eight thousand dollars, and and you're shocked, right? And you're yeah. and you're losing your mind at that, and you're yeah. frustrated. And yeah. then there's a poem, a yeah. poem, yeah. on the other page, and that soothes your spirit, right? That 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 was within reach. We had yeah. that in our yeah. lifetimes. Oh, yeah. That's what was taken away from you, right? Right. It, I, oh. Yeah. You want to you want to hear one yes, of the poems I that want to he hear published one of the poems in the Springfield Republican that was published in this. Yes, very much <clears throat> more than anything. Brad. Quote, I taste a liquor never brewed from tankards scooped in pearl. Not all the Frankfurt berries yield such an alcohol. Inebriate of air am I in debauchee of dew reeling through endless summer days from inns of molten blue. When landlords turn the drunken bee out of the foxglove's door. When butterflies renounce their drams, I shall but drink the more. Till seraphs swing their snowy hats and saints to windows run to see the little tippler leaning against the sun. That's one of the poems that he samples did publish. He published them sort of begrudgingly. He was sort of like, ah, fine, okay. He had no insight into the fact that she was doing anything interesting at all. That's an insanely pagan dangerous oh, yeah. poem she this is the thing 
it, depending on your definition of pagan, Emily mm-hmm. Dickinson is a pagan for sure. Right. I'm kind of picking um, that's what I told you. Got yes. a hot topic, uh, <laughs> witchy yes. girlfriend, go to yes. the cure kind of concert yeah. kind of vibe from yeah. good old M. Now, this relationship sort of dwindles over time as one does. I mean, you can imagine. Well, yeah, he, yeah. Well, he was a Republican, bro. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. No, but she didn't feel like he, he was responding to her poems. I think this is partially why. Also, it never I mean, eventually an unreciprocated romantic relationship. You got to you got to give it up eventually. Right. Um, you give it some time and nothing happens and you move on. But also, he wasn't really doing much with the poetry. He wasn't really responding to it. But let me read a little bit towards the end of this. Um, Quote, to put the letter in its setting, Bowles had apparently just visited the Dickinson. This is about 1877. So Emily is, why would she be 47 years old? This is much later. Um, The Dickens uh, had hesitated uh, hesitated between borrowing a book about Theophilus Theophilus Parsons and uh, borrowing a copy of Junius, or perhaps they had been offered him as gifts. This is the time when, according to family story, so 1877, Emily is locked away in her room, right? And Sam Bowles has come to visit after many years. They've known each other 20 years. Um, uh, According to the family story, Emily had at first declined to see him. So he shows up and she just says, no. And he apparently shouts up the stairs, Emily, you damned rascal. No more of this nonsense. I've traveled all the way from Springfield to see you. Come down at once. And down she came, we are told, and was charming and sociable. (laughs) I, I just love that. Like, she could be pulled out of her nest. She could be if you if you could do something that would interest her enough, she would come to see you. It's just she's she's not going to just engage in all of the petty nonsense that everybody else is spending their days on, you know, per her perspective. Um, she's a little difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, mm. um, uh, here's uh, here's Good. the last. Good for yeah. her. Why not? Good. Why not? Yeah. yeah. Maintain. I mean, she, she owned herself, you know, in a certain sense. Um, here's, here is a, um, here's a, I think it's, might be the last letter she wrote him. This is, uh, and includes, well, let me just read the whole letter. Dear friend, Vinny accidentally mentioned that you hesitated between those two, those two books. Would you confer so sweet a favor as to accept that too, when you come again? I went to the room as soon as you left to confirm your presence, recalling the psalmist sonnet to, uh, psalmist sonnet to god beginning and then she gives it a poem that she wrote herself which is known as number 1398 i have no life but this to lead it here nor any death but lest dispelled from there nor tie to earth's to come nor action new except through this extent the love of you it is and then the poem's over it is strange that the most intangible thing is the most adhesive and then she signs it your rascal. <laughs> it is strange that the most intangible thing is the most adhesive. Yeah. And beautiful little phrase. That's right? a that's a beautiful turn of phrase. It is. Yeah. 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 She's trying to make something metaphysical out of mercantile English language, which is so difficult. No, that's to true. Do. Yeah. It's yeah. very, very tricky. Yeah. yeah English yeah. is such, everybody waxes on about English. English is ugly. English is. Uh, oh, I love it. Yeah. No, <laughs> I find, more, I find it's, English it's, to be. It's beautiful and ugly. That's, that's it's beautifully ugly. Yeah 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 yeah, yeah. 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 
Now, I don't, I don't want hate mail. I don't want yeah. hate mail. But like the word adhesive itself is not. Oh, it's rough. It's a rough it's word. A, it's a, but uh, to, to try to, in, yeah. try to embed it in a little what she would call a diadem. She would often refer mm. to her poetry as diadem, a diadem or mm. jewels or flowers. To embed it in a diadem, it is strange that the most intangible thing is the most adhesive. Right. It's just, mm. yeah, it's nice. Now, <clears throat> um, yeah, lovely. Okay, I'm going to finish the love part, and then we're going to move on to another reason why she might have been a recluse. There are a series of three letters that no one knows for sure who they were supposed to go to that were found among her records. It's not clear if all three of them were even sent to people. There are multiple drafts of them, and these are called the master letters. She was writing to some master, man. Master, yeah. <laughs> master, master of puppets of polygraph. She, I gotta, was I writing, <laughs> she was writing to some man who she referred to as master. Woo! And these are clearly Whoa. love letters. Oh, I got to get. Oh, yeah. goodness. Yeah. yeah. Well, oh, let me read from the biography. My, here, I'm going to fan yeah. myself with my latte here. Yeah. I got my, my Redraft words. letters, quote, three draft letters, unusually long for her maturity, were found among Emily Dickinson's papers after she died. Two in ink with corrections in pencil, one in pencil throughout, and all directed to a man she called master, otherwise unidentified. The two in ink seem ready for posting, although there is no evidence that any of them ever was. They are in the handwriting of the late 1850s and early 1860s, and a mention of her dog Carlo in one of them confirms the date as of that period. Do you see how they had to construct her biography? Oh, she mentions her dog in this letter, so it must have been roughly around this time, right? Very... So no diary, no autobiography, nobody's no. tracking her day-to-day, -day, no. I see. Most of it's most of, and most of these letters are from biographers going out to people they knew she knew and basically being like, did your great grandmother leave any letters from Emily Dickinson? Damn. Oh yeah, Going there into happens, old like yeah. cases of Yeah, oh yeah, you know I think she did have a, a letter, right? And you're okay, sure. you know. Wow. Um that yeah. by the way, that's biography. That's biography. That's yeah. history. That yeah, is how history compared to that we're just done. screwing around. Yeah, no, we we were just yeah, yeah truly. Yeah. 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 Um Austin and uh, Vinny winnowed out six sentences. Uh, da, 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 da. That's not what I'm interested in reading. Hold on. Let me give you part of the first master letter. Now, the two leading candidates for who the master was are Wadsworth, the famous preacher, and Sam Bowles, but nobody knows for sure. And there's circumstantial evidence indicating it could have been one or the other. Slightly Whoa. with Sam Bowles, slightly in the leader, has slightly more circumstantial evidence, but there are things that indicate it could be to Wadsworth. Um, let, me, let me read you this one. Dear Master, <clears throat> quote, Dear Master, I am ill, but grieving more that you are ill. I make my stronger hand work long enough to tell you. I thought perhaps you were in heaven, and when you spoke again, it seemed quite sweet and wonderful and surprised me so. I wish that you were well. I would that all I love should be weak no more. The violets are by my side, the robin very near in the spring, they say. Who is she? Going by the door. Indeed, it is God's house, and these are gates of these are gates of heaven, and to and fro the angels go with their sweet postillions. I wish that I were great, like Mr. Michael Angelo, and could paint for you. You ask me what my flowers said, flowers being her poems, and th then they were disobedient. I gave them messages. They said they said what the lips in the west say when the sun goes down, and so says the dawn. Listen again, master, I did not tell you that today had been the Sabbath day. Each Sabbath on the sea makes me count the Sabbaths till we meet on shore. And will the weather, the hills will look as blue as the sailors say, I cannot talk anymore tonight, for this pain denies me. 
How strong when weak to recollect and easy quite to love. Will you tell me, please to tell me, soon as you are well? Now, she wrote uh, another one. I'm just going to read another little bit and then we'll kind of move on from this because uh, this is, this is a, quite a nice letter, I think. Master, <clears throat> if you saw a bullet hit a bird and he told you he wasn't shot, you might weep at his courtesy, but you would certainly doubt his word. One drop more from the gash that stains your daisy's bosom, she's daisy, uh, then would you believe? Thomas's faith in anatomy was stronger than his faith in faith. God made me, master. I didn't be myself. I don't know how it was done. He built the heart in me. By and by it outgrew me. And like the little mother with the big child, I got tired holding him. I heard of a thing called redemption, which rested men and women. You remember I asked you for it. You gave me something else. I forgot the redemption and was tired no more. No rose yet felt myself a bloom. No bird yet rode in ether. And it goes on. I mean, it's multiple pages long. That line, I didn't be myself, is right? ridiculous. <laughs> that is some next level. That's what you're after mm -hmm. as a writer. Yeah. Yeah, it's very. She, yeah. What she meant is what she's implying. She did not beget herself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, perfect. But well, she's also yeah. she's also suggesting that she probably in their relationship, she was not her. She can't say what she truly wants to say. Right. We have all experienced yeah. that. I, I did not yeah. be myself. Yes. Oh, and I think it's I think it's um, it's. One should not assume that when Emily is writing at her highest register, as she is there, that anything means just one thing. No, of course. Yeah, it's yeah, all clearly. it's all crystal. You know, it's crystals that you're refracting light through, and then three, four, five things can be meant in any in any one phrase. Um, yeah. Now we're going to move into another reason supposed by various biographers and scholars to why she would have become a recluse. And this is tied into the Sam Bowles thing. Remember, Sam Bowles published a couple of her poems, but she felt that Sam Bowles never recognized her talent and that they edited her poems when they published them and that he wasn't asking her for more. And she'd, she'd thrown dozens of poems at him and he'd only published a couple. And so she sort of started to give up on it. And some people have said, well, Maybe she became a recluse because she felt rejected as a poet and she thought there was no hope for her in this world, right? Now, we're going to talk about that. We're going to unpack that. And I don't think that's accurate, but there's an interesting story there. But first, I need to take a bathroom break. So, Kevin, vamp for a minute to a minute. You a know that I can vamp. Go ahead. Take that bathroom break. We're going to be good. I hope everybody is enjoying Brad's core episode of Emily Dickinson on this episode of Art of Darkness. This is a lot of fun. We're getting ready to do her for the book club here in July. The book club is sort of a choose your own adventure thing. If you want to join us live, like and actually be on the Zoom, you can. That's for Patreon, patreon.com slash art of dark pod. Or you just sign up for Patreon and then listen back to the recording that we make of that. We also have, as part of that book club, uh, a Blood Meridian special coming at the end of the year. We've had this plan for a while. We did not just say, hey, let's do this because Cormac passed. That's been planned for a hot minute. And Aaron Gwynn is going to join us on that uh, episode in December of 2023. I personally cannot wait for that. It's been a long time since I, I read Blood Meridian. 
I was just at a play recently. My friend Amanda was in uh, as an actor, and uh, it was set at a pool here in St. Paul. And I was sitting in the bleachers, and I looked down, and the guy in front of me had, I, I'm pretty sure, a copy of Blood Meridian. And I was like, okay, I guess if you're, if you're going to read it right after Cormac dies, I, I guess, go ahead. <laughs> ah, okay, you know. Maybe hopefully he had read it before and he was circling back. I just uh, it's going to be fun. That's going to be fun in December. I can't wait to order my copy and uh, reread that book. We got some other good stuff coming up. I'm prepping Frida Kahlo, which should be good. I went to Mexico a few years ago and kind of got the impression that she the way they treat her there is a little different from the way we treat her here the sort of. I don't know. She's sort of been made into like a pop icon. Now we're not going to treat her that way on art of darkness. Brad, I was just talking about Frida Kahlo. Ah, yes. about, yeah. I spotted a copy of blood Meridian in the wild Ooh. recently. And I was sort of like, okay, well, <laughs> should have been reading it before the man died, but I'll allow it. You can do. <laughs> hey man, so, it, you know, yeah. It still came to it, right? Hey, yeah. Yeah. Hey, at least they're reading. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. fine. That's fine. If you sure. haven't read it yet, don't don't hold like oh, oh 100 percent. Yeah, no judgment. Hell yeah, yeah. yeah. Get yeah. it in because in December the book club is gonna that is gonna be a banger. Win is gonna come in hot. Yeah, I have yeah. no idea. We're that's probably gonna be like a multi episode. I don't even know how that's gonna look. I think it's gonna right. be an episode that you, Gwen, and I do. Then we'll do the the book sure. club. Yeah, we have to figure yeah. it out. Yeah, and then yeah, we'll, next we'll year, just we'll treat it as a dark room, and what we'll do is we'll just say f- the word Faulkner at the beginning, and then it'll just be about <laughs> we, it's our show. We can do whatever we want, yeah. and then next year, uh, obviously, we will we'll do Cormac next. Yeah, year, I'm terrified, sure. but we'll do it. Okay, I vamped, I vamped, I got a Good. cold, Brad, and I, I vamped for you because I, I appreciate. I know, it. hey, when nature calls, yeah, yeah, no, and I got to be focused. I got to be dialed in. We are getting there. Um, telling the story of Emily Dickinson. Now, as I said multiple reasons have been put forth for quote unquote reasons for Emily Dickinson's um, seclusion, reclusion, becoming a hermit, etc. We talked about the various love loves of her life, including Susan, the preacher Wadsworth and um, Sam Bowles. There are a couple of others and we may get to them, but those are the most prominent ones. Um, and, and Leonard Humphrey, the man who died of brain congestion as well. And a couple others when in her youth that we didn't even discuss because there's there's literally she had several people who she would have wanted to be her lovers if they were they weren't. Um, the other reason, poetic rejection, this idea that, you know, she's trying to get her poems in the Springfield Republican. They sort of do. Nothing happens. They get butchered up. They get no response. Maybe she seclude. Maybe she just gave up. Right. Um that's not true but let's let's unpack it a little bit now when they when they uh published her poems particularly the one i want to look at is the one i read that i tasted i taste a liquor never brewed they made some significant changes one you can't you can't hear necessarily but you can see on the page and that is that in Emily's version, there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 13 or 14 dashes that were removed entirely. Um, basically, Sam Bowles or his whoever he had editing poetry didn't understand what they were for and so just pulled them out, turned them into commas, did nothing with them, whatever. 
There were a couple of words that were changed as well, not significantly, um, but but yeah, it, it took out some of the capitalization. So um, uh, Emily capitalized in a manner that to some people seems spurious, but I don't think actually is. Um, I don't think she did anything in her poetry. That was an accident. Um, <clears throat> then there are some odd choices of changes too. So like in her poem, she said, not all the Frankfurt berries yield such an alcohol. And then in the one that was published was not all the vats upon the Rhine, Rhine yield such an alcohol. I don't know why you would change that personally. And so, so there were a bunch of weird changes like that. And in 1890, when the first editions of her poetry came out via uh, Mabel Loomis Todd and Thomas Wentworth Higginson, there was a bunch that they took out because I don't think they knew what to do with them. They didn't, you know, you didn't, it's 1890, you've got this woman poet, you're not trying to bring out her poems where she's talking about death and violence, right? You got to leave those out um, and either leave them out entirely or you change some substantial lines. Um, eventually now you can read them as Emily intended them to be seen, but it took a, it took a minute. Um, now, uh, now I want to talk a little bit about the dashes because I read this thing. I'll, I'll tell you my story with these. So I'm reading these poems and, you know, we, we all know it, it's no mystery that poems are meant and to some degree to be read aloud. You're, you're supposed to hear them. Right. Yeah, poems are poems are songs. Songs are poems. Right, right, right. Yeah. And so you read these, and some of these poems have many dashes, and they're in odd places. And sometimes there's a dash at the end of the last word, right? So you're like, why, why is that there? Right? Like I can see it when you you've got it between two words, and you're trying to sort of you know make a little jump, like a like an interruption almost. Um, or as as like a colon or a semicolon, I can see that. But why would you put a dash after the last word? That doesn't seeming seem to make any yeah, sense. Yeah, it seems a little bit like oh, you got like almost a twitch, or right? Something's wrong. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Now, yeah, I'm gonna read you. I'm gonna read you uh, one of her poems. This is one I quite like, and I think this is an important statement from her. This poem. I don't think that all of her poems are autobiographical. I think some of them she's posing or she's a character or she's the little girl or whatever. But I think this one is for real. This is my letter to the world that never wrote to me. The simple news that nature told with tender majesty. Her message is committed to hands I cannot see. For love of her, sweet countrymen, judge tenderly of me. Okay. Now, when you read uh, the first publications of this, it only had one dash in it. And this was after the line that never wrote to me. Okay. Now, in her version, it has one, two, three, four, five, six or seven dashes. Okay. Now, as I was saying, it's kind of confusing. Okay, what are all these dashes doing? And some of them are very strange. For instance, in that poem... It's for love of her dash sweet dash countrymen. Why when you need them between her sweet dash sweet? What's going on? Right. Okay. So I I was like, I needed to find out what the current thinking is on this. 
I spent a long time trying to get to the bottom of this because partially because I knew she meant it to affect how you read it aloud in some manner, right? It has to mean something. Okay, so this is from uh, a man named Crumbly's uh, or a scholar named Crumbly's book called Inflections of the Pen, the uses of use of dashes in Emily Dickinson. It's literally an entire book about this subject. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I hunted this thing down. Now I'm just going to quote a few things from it. And that's how Brad <laughs> entered a PhD program. <laughs> Seriously. What are these yeah. dashes? Right, right, right. Yeah, I what did like could a... they possibly be? Yeah. I did like one. 64th of a PhD preparing for this episode. 10 years later, yeah. Brad comes yeah. up and goes, I have no idea what these dashes mean, <laughs> right, right. but I have tenure now. Right. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you see, I don't know what the dashes mean either, Kevin, but I don't know what they are more than you don't know. You see? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was just going to say, I don't know more than you right <laughs> yeah. and right. now i'm part of the establishment right. elite <laughs> i can tell you all the ways i don't know this is epistemology for the kids uh -huh. by the way yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah. by the way this is the logical conclusion of protestantism <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay i will tell you all the ways i don't know i will write a book about it <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you teach at Amherst. I could. I'd love to. I'd love. I'd love to teach at Amherst. Yeah. If somebody out there in the Amherst yeah, yeah. hiring committee, I can. I am qualified to teach at the university I, level. So am people. I. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's it's like an upper graduate, <clears throat> uh, upper level undergraduate class, and it's just literally a dash is the name of the class. <laughs> I love With that, Professor yeah. Kelly. MFA. A thousand uses of the dash. <laughs> Use number one. I'm sorry, it's not <laughs> Mrs. Dash, it's Dr. Dash. That's right. <laughs> All right, let me read from this book. Quote, I propose that the marks, all but a few recent editors have reductively designated as either M dashes or N dashes, are ventral to a graphocentric poetics within which they perform as highly nuanced visual single signals intimately linked to Dickinson's experiments with poetic voice. Uh, the broad category of marks that come under the heading, quote, dash, suggests subtle gradations of inflection and syntactic disjunctions that multiply the voices in poems and letters, precisely because these dashes can expand rather than restrict voicing options. They play an important role in defining a poetic project designed to present readers a wide range of simultaneous meanings. Okay, let me translate that into actual English. What this author is saying is the dashes represent a almost a kind of musical notation in terms of opening up varying kinds of voices that you can be using in participating in this poem. What that would mean is that different dashes might indicate different things, right? Uh, might indicate different changes in pitch and speed and tone. Um, and if that's the case, then either there are subtle differences in the handwritten dashes that people have not really been able to note or it's simply a music that is lost to us because emily dickinson is dead right and no one's ever heard these performed aloud by her Sure, and it could just be yeah. hey i feel like throwing a dash in here like it's a new <laughs> yeah. thought it's a new yeah. it's yeah. yeah 
Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I'm going to tell you my how I like to use them. And, and people who've been listening closely may have caught me kept, caught me doing it already. But let me read a couple other things from this, this book. <clears throat> Quote, in the following chapters, I divide Dickinson's speakers according to the voices of the child, the bride, and the queen in order to represent paradigmatic relationships speakers have with conventional discourse rather than as labels for unified identities. Okay, so, so she's, this author is suggesting there are different Emily Dickinsons, and part of the way you might be able to navigate which Emily Dickinson is, is sort of narrator character of Emily Dickinson is speaking is through the use of these dashes. Okay going on in a different part of the book. Through her innovative use of the dash in combination with other unconventional writing practices, Dickinson strains coherence in order to make reading occur simultaneously on the multiple levels sketched out here. All of Dickinson's poems potentially activate at least three kinds of movement, the centripetal linear movement of conventional discourse, the centrifugal spatial expansion of heteroglossia and polyvocality, and the cessation of movement that occurs when heteroglossia overcomes centripetal unity and arrests consciousness with raw physicality. These mechanisms force readers to recognize that discourse is created rather than predetermined, excuse me, that readers themselves control linguistic meaning, personal identity, and the voices heard by the mind's ear. Now, let me give you one other part a broad consensus currently exists that the dickinson's dash dickinson dashes signal disjunction that's what i first thought uh but what significant what significance do we attach to this disjunction and how in any individual poem do we assess the degree of disjunction and corresponding voice tonalities indicated by dashes ranging in length in length position and slant so this author is saying there may be subtle differences in how these were written by hand in which dickinson has encoded uh, clue, uh, include uh, uh, sort of a map of how to read these, right? But no one has really quite cracked the code. Uh, when should readers internally regularize the verse, including syntax Dickinson scrupulously uh, preserved in fair copies and letters, if the disjunction seems negligible? When should the dis dashes be trusted as serious markers that potentially introduce voice changes wherever they appear? These questions, I will argue, can never be definitively answered. They must be confronted and wrestled with anew with each reading of a Dickinson poem. Okay. Um, you know, there's I've got some more, but I think I think we'll I'll definitely say leave them in there. Don't yes. mess oh, around yeah. with them. There's no if point. That's in how she wrote them. There's, there's literally there. nothing is gained by taking them out, right? If Because as a reader, if you want to just pretend they're not there, you can pretend they're not there and you, you can still have them if you want to try and master it. Now, here's uh, here's another uh, another slightly less um, egg-headed way of looking at these is that basically the dash should signify something in music as... Yo, uh, I haven't heard that word egghead in so long. <laughs> we got to bring that back, dude. Good one, man. That's so real. It's, a good one. it's so true. Yeah. I'm, I'm just listening to you go, bah, 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 yeah. just like, okay, all right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's a fucking dash. Shut up. Yeah. Shut up. Yeah. Shut up. Yeah. Shut up. Yeah. Shut up. Shut up. Yeah. <laughs> I love this stuff. No. I know. I know. I yeah. do too. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't mean you. I, yeah. Right. I, I, there are two wolves inside me. Right. Yes. Like I, there, there's yes. a wolf. In, people need to understand this about this podcast. There's a wolf inside me that's like fuck you let's read the poem i want to hear the poem and then there's yeah. a wolf inside me that's like no i want to hear what harold bloom had to say about the right. poem yeah in his yeah. 400 page book about the one page poem right 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 yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I, sure. I i can appreciate both things yeah 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 now 
here's the simplest way to do this. And, and then I'm going to tell you what the simplest consensus is on how to read the dashes. And then I'm going to tell you what I've been sort of attempting to do, because I think I think I'm getting close to it. There's a thing in music called a half rest that people might know. A half rest would be uh, the amount of time approximating a double comma. You know how you take a you take a slight break when there's a comma, slight pause. Yeah, it'd be one, two, three, four. Yeah, one, two, three. Yeah. That that little yeah. Yeah, a lot of the thought is that in Emily Dickinson poem, the dash should be sort of a double comma in duration. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Now, what I I have thought and. I could be wrong, but it sounds nice to me when I've done it. And maybe it's only true for some of the dashes is that it should drag out the word right at right before it. And I'll give you an example. When I read we're cracking the, the code, we're cracking the Dickinson yeah. code on Art of Darkness. Yeah. When I read one of the first poems, oh, hold on, let me get to it. When I read one of the first poems I read to you guys, which is um, uh, sorry, hold on. It's right here someplace. Yeah. When I read when I read the first po- one of the first poems, the brain is wider than the sky, and I did the amazing grace thing. The brain, right? There's a dash after brain and a dash after sky, and I think what she's saying to you is, you say the brain is wider than the sky. Four, and then the next sentence is four dash. Put them side by side. Four, put them side by side. The like, I think what she's saying in some of them is stretch that word out just a little bit longer than if you were to read it normally. Hmm. That's my take. Anyway, it it's worth noting that a lot of ink has been spilled on these. An entire book is on the dash. Read one of these poems the way that you would based on your. But don't yeah. overdo it. Just read yeah. it the way that you would read it. For me, with, do it for the this, culture, with Brad. This, with this stretch out, this is what I was just yeah. about to do. I got a whole one for you. Hold on, let me get. Oh, to sweet. It, I lost my. I lost my page. I got a lot of pages here, Kevin. Uh, I no doubt you got a lot yeah. of dashes. You got a lot of yes. pages. Yeah, here's you got one a lot of podcast. I, okay, go. Yeah, it. here's one. Here's one, and it's a great poem too. So, um, this is called generally thought of as the white heat poem. Uh, um. 365. Yeah, this is an intense one. And you could spend a lot of time trying to unpack what she's trying to tell you here. Um, oh, no. Oh, hold on. I'll just um, I'll just pull it up. You White got it. Heat poem. White heat. Emily Dickinson. This is another good thing. There's all the Emily Dickinson poems are online. There's no like, can I find that one? Is it? A, no, they're all out there. Nobody, like, she wrote about almost 1800, like 17. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's wild. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, yeah. Dare you see a soul at the white heat? Then crouch within the door. Red is the fire's common tint. But when the vivid ore has vanquished flame's conditions, it quivers from the forge without a color, but the light of unanointed blades. Least village has its blacksmith, whose anvils even ring, stands symbols, symbol for the finer forge that soundless tugs within, refining these impatient ores with hammer and with blaze untile the designated light, repudiate the forge. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. Here's you can another labor one. over that. You can oh, labor yeah. over that thing. Yeah, we're not going to try to pick it apart. I just want to, and I love this. I love the first sentence, the first line. Dare you see a soul at the white heat? 
like whoa <laughs> right because we all the hottest flame is white right yeah and there's something and then that we hear about the emulation in white later yeah. wearing those clothes and then you think about the fact that she described herself as emulating herself in white and people would say you know if you saw a person and all they wore was white you would think oh that's like about peace and complacency and calm and right like it's what a religious person does like a like a like a nun would wear all white and to her white maybe for all we know was about intensity right like on mm. fire with it so it's just an interesting little artifact of her of her work this this notion now there's something else strange about emily dickinson's writing that i have caught and other people have caught and i stumble over it every time i read it and this is called a slant rhyme um i don't know kevin are you do you remember your old poetry lessons do you know what a slant rhyme is i'm afraid to say off the cuff i don't Fine. tell me a slant rhyme is also known as an imperfect rhyme oh it's sure so it's that, like it's a uh word that almost rhymes yeah, it'd be like yawn and farm. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it, yeah, in a certain way, it kind of rhymes, but not quite, right? And sure. we're all familiar with this. And sometimes she drops them and I'm like, man, that's rough. Like that imperfect rhyme is rough. And I start to wonder myself, like, should I be forcing it to rhyme? Like, is that what she wants me to do? I'm, I'm not sure. Um, there's something interesting, though, and I want you to just follow me with this. The word slant rhyme for that phenomena was coined in 1926, well after Emily Dickinson was gone, right? Mm -hmm. I think I think it might have actually come from her that they're called slant rhymes because of Emily Dickinson. And I'm going to read you the poem that makes me think this. <clears throat> tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. Too bright for our infirm delight, the truth's superb surprise. As lightning to the children eased with explanation kind, the truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. Okay, tell it slant. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. And what her point is, I think, in this poem is like, listen, if you if you were to like confront the face of God, it would destroy you, right? You need to come at these things. If you're going to try to approach the white heat, the the, the ultimate truth, you can't head it face on because you're a human being and you can't handle it, right? And I think her slant rhymes are something like a suggestion that we need these slight imperfections or else we're not actually going to be able to handle the truth, the thing, God, whatever. Like we need to kind of crack it a little bit or else we're not going to be able to handle. I don't know if that's crazy or not, but I'm so far down the Emily Dickinson rabbit hole that like I don't I don't begrudge her any any uh any objective she may have had in writing these poems. Um but I will say that I think the slant rhymes in my opinion after reading all this are on purpose. You're not supposed to try to make them rhyme and they're part of a larger objective that she has i'll just leave it at that i think um okay this is mystic she's she mystical 100 yeah. percent. yeah, yeah i'm sold i yeah this is fascinating yeah yeah, uh, yeah. okay mm. and, and this is what i love very to do heavy it was like i had a similar question i was like here's how i would phrase it in my head was emily dickinson the real deal like everybody says she was right was she sure you know, what is going on? And the real deal to me is like the highest compliment I can pay to somebody. Yeah. Right. 
And as I'm reading this, I'm like, oh, yeah, she was. Yeah, she I'm kind of like, what the hell was going on in this attic at Amherst <laughs> with this yeah. woman? Yeah. 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 Oh, God, I hate that they that like Apple Plus has made a series out of her life. I hate right? that so much. Right. Oh, this my God. mystery of like this mysterious pagan witch up here, like. Right. Like reinventing the English And they're going to try to make her like yeah. a girl boss kind of right. a thing. Right. Oh, pain. Max, yeah, it turns pain, out Max that she, yeah, yeah, it turns out that pain. she's hashtag maybe. killing it. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe yeah. it'll be great. Maybe, maybe it'll be great. Yeah. I, I want to, I, I want to be optimistic about it, yeah. but I'm not. Yeah. yeah. Now, is that show out or is that being made? I'm not sure. There's been two. There's, there's the maybe memory. it's come and gone and we don't have yeah. to ever talk about it or think yeah. about it again. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's one. So there's Wild Nights with Emily that is already out and it's about Emily being, um, it's about her relationship with Susan. Then, then there's, you know, fictitious and imagined. And I think that one is, there's, I think that one is with, um, Molly Shannon plays the older Emily, I believe. All right. I I, I decided I was going to watch all of it, and then I decided not to watch any of it. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's. I, I I hope that it's good. I hope that it's good. Oh, it would be great. It would be great. Sure, sure, yeah. sure, sure. Um. Yeah. Okay. Here's, oh. Oh, you muted yourself there, Kevin. Yeah, yeah. I'm still. Yeah. I'm just still kind of going. Uh, yeah. Reeling yeah. from the, the the poetry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. So let me uh try. I sort of have a, a thing I kind of want to talk about here. Um, so the one little bit on poetic rejection. Um, okay. This notion that she, she was rejected. She felt rejected by poetry. There was a, a article in the Springfield Republican shortly after she'd published one of her poems in there that basically indicated to her that like, you know what, this isn't the place for me, the Springfield Republican. And she would kind of move on after that. I think we need to say something about poetry in general at this time and for women. A woman writing poetry was not encouraged. It was to some degree tolerated. Um, there were handbooks of etiquette for women at this time, which basically said, like, you shouldn't really aim for anything more lofty in the literary sense than writing nice letters. That should be your goal. Um, yeah. Writing poetry is meant kind of for men. And if you're going to write poetry, women were not meant to have a public uh, public persona. They were right. not meant to have a public life, right? For sure. Right. Be partly because now let's be obviously we've come a long way, haven't yeah. we? But partly because the pu public life is a fucking sewer. It's <laughs> yes, disgusting. True. Right. It's horrific. Right. Right. Yeah. Part. Yeah. Partly for them. Right. But yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. that's probably fair to say. Yeah. yeah in let's, some part. Yeah. Yeah. But go yeah. on. Yeah, and and so and now you get to have a public life. Aren't you happy? Right? Aren't we? Uh, everybody's better for it, right? Right. Yeah, so right. It's tricky. It's tricky. Isn't yeah. It? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there is. So there is. I, I think a sense. There's a way of looking at Emily Dickinson's life, where it's like religion wasn't for her. The religion as she saw it wasn't for her. She wasn't going to convert. She couldn't buy into it for whatever reason, right? And romantic relationships didn't seem. It seemed like they didn't catch for her. There is a sense that which she took on poetry as her religion, and she wouldn't tell most people directly that she was writing poetry for her own reasons, but she would sometimes refer to it obliquely, and biographers have taken this as her talking about poetry as saying uh, how she'll refer to people as she's been doing naughty things. She'll tell people she's been doing something naughty, 
doing something she's not supposed to do. And it's not mm. clear, but a lot of biographers think she was writing it, when she said that she meant she was writing poetry and that she's been being bad by writing poetry. Ooh, right? I like it. I, I like, like it. it. Yeah. No. Yeah. You've been podcasting again, mm-hmm. Emily. Yeah. You've been now, naughty. Now we need to talk about. That's so funny. How her poems were discovered a, a little bit. By Again, the way, I'm just yeah. going to say this right now. You need to be writing poetry. If you're listening started, to this episode. I started mm-hmm. I, after years this past week, I started writing poetry. <laughs> you need to be writing poetry, people. It mm-hmm. is. You need to be making theater. You need to be writing poetry. You need to be writing stories. You need to be you need to be doing this. Everybody needs to be aspiring to try to write. Write a freaking haiku. I don't care. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You need to be engaging with language at that and, level. And you don't have to be obsessed with the doing it constantly like Emily, but but at least play around with these forms a little bit, right? At least because there is something to be learned there for sure about yourself yes. and other people and every, you know, um, now about the very operating system that determines the outcome of your life. And what's and what this thing in between your ears is, what is what is actually going on in there? Right. Right. The brain is yeah. as wide as the sky. What, what do you mean? Does that word mean? Right. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Really? Yeah. What does I it, encourage what does it everybody. Really mean? What does yeah. it really mean? Indeed. Yeah. And how do you craft new meaning? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Now, talking about Emily Dickinson's how she was assembling her poetry. And in this, I, I, I wasn't able to go down this rabbit hole entirely. But I, God, again, I could do it. I could. This would be something I think I could get enough energy for a PhD. Now, she bound her poems. You are in, never getting a PhD. I'm, I'm not PhD. letting you. They're not going to. They're not going to accept gonna, me anywhere. Nah, be, yeah. Yeah. Okay. She she bound her she bound her poems in these sort of packets that have come to be called fascicles. And what they would be was twelve to eighteen poems rewritten out very carefully. And then she would basically put two holes in the stack and thread ribbon around them. And that would be a packet of poems. And at first, the editors, Thomas Wentworth Higginson and other people who were involved in publishing these poems, paid no attention to how these poems were organized. But later scholars have suggested that there are indications in the letter, in in the way that the words are, uh, in the way that the poems are arranged, that Emily was actually engaged in a sort of a project above the project in which she was very carefully sequencing these one to the next and in sort of writing one big poem in which all of these are interacting with each other. And I think that's probably right. Because I think her her level of painstaking effort and how meticulously she was, why wouldn't she begin to arrange them in some kind of logical sequence, right? Yeah. So anyway, that's that's I don't have any other ideas about that other than to say that that there's the poems, and then I think there's also how the poems were assembled for each together. So, um, okay. Now, again, we're still playing with this idea that she became a recluse because she was poetically rejected. Um, To continue this story, we need to bring another figure in. And this is a guy I've talked about a little bit, Thomas Wentworth Higginson. And he's an interesting guy in of himself. He's seven years older than Emily. We're not quite in age gap, gap discourse, but older enough. He was a Unitarian minister. He was an author. He was an abolitionist. He was a politician. He was a soldier. In 1859, he was one of the secret six who founded John Bra- uh, John Brown's raid on Harper Ferry on Harper's Ferry. 
During the Civil War, he was a colonel of the 1st South Carolina Volunteers, which was the first federally authorized black regiment. Um, I don't know if you remember that movie Glory from the 1980s. That wasn't about Higginson, but it could have been about him. Um, uh, and as an author, he was he would become one of Emily's favorite writers, favorite living writers. Um, and he had an affiliation with the Atlant- Atlantic. And as a sort of a, a sort of a super liberal, he found himself interested, very interested in cultivating the writing of the younger generation and women in particular. He published a letter in the Atlantic uh, that's entitled Letter to a Younger Contributor and basically encouraging the younger generation to step up as writers. Emily wrote him in response. This is in 1862. <laughs> I'm going to read this letter. Mr. Higginson. And remember, this is the first letter she's written to. She's writing to a very well-known person in the, in, in the literary world. Mr. Higginson, are you too deeply occupied to say if my verse is alive? The mind is so near itself, it cannot see distinctly, and I have none to ask. Should you think it breathed and had you the leisure to tell me, I should feel quick gratitude. If I make the mistake that you dared to tell me, would give me sincerer honor toward you. I enclose my name, asking you, if you please, sir, to tell me what is true. That you will not betray me, it is needless to ask, since honor is its own pawn. And then she sent on a separate sheet of paper, she signed her name, and then she sent four poems to him. Okay, including this one, which had been recently published in the Springfield Republican. <clears throat> Hold on, let me get it so I can see it all at once. Okay, <clears throat> quote. Safe in their alabaster chambers, untouched by morning and untouched by noon, sleep the meek members of the resurrection, rafter of satin and roof of stone. Grand go the years and the crescent above them, worlds scoop their arcs and firmaments row, diadems drop and dogs surrender, soundless as dots on a disk of snow. Now, Higginson was kind and encouraging towards her. And in this sense, he was kind of a good mentor, but he was also a highly conventional man with very conservative tastes and a very pragmatic, poetic sensibility. In some ways, his openness and his encouragement made him the perfect mentor for a writer, but his tastes made him a terrible mentor for Emily Dickinson in particular, right? Um, so he often missed the po- point of Dickinson's poetry entirely. Like he would read it and sort of, He'd be fixated on, well, why doesn't that rhyme, Emily? But what do you, you know, meanwhile, she's like saying, yeah. the most, you know, she's writing like Nietzsche level philosophy in, a, sure. in one High sentence. Right. Psychology, she's right. getting to the very right. essence of what it is to be human right. and he's right. not getting it. Yeah, he's just yeah. not getting it. Now, um, sometimes the, the teacher and the pupil don't match and it's nobody's right. fault. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Now, um, he, she would later say that he saved her life. And I think what she meant by this is he continued to his his correspondence with her was very encouraging. Right. Um, and you have to think she's she's alone in this room by herself, but she counts as friends in her correspondence as an important, a historically significant uh, writer and editor. Uh, the man who runs the most popular newspaper of the day and one of the most famous preachers in the country. She counts these as people as friends, right? Um, also, interestingly, um, Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson was coming through. I think he spoke at an uh, at an Amherst 
commencement. And he came to Austin and Susan's next door for drinks or whatever. And Emily decided not to go. It's one of the most (laughs) who needs him. Right. (laughs) Go back to the pond. (laughs) Right. That's that's the row. It's a different guy. Um, oh, right. Oh, yeah, yeah. you're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. Oh, God. Now yeah. I got to edit the, edit the episode. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Now, she tended to pose in her letters um, to him. This is, the, this is the other thing. When she's writing a letter, you don't know if she's telling you exactly what, how she feels and thinks, or is this her presenting herself in a particular way? Even her brother Austin would say she was very careful about how she came off to people and didn't necessarily feel any obligation to hew to the truth, right? As one does as a writer. Um, She wanted to be seen, it seems, in these first letters by Higginson as sort of an ingenue. Was she romantically interested in Higginson? That's a possibility, though, if she was, that very quickly dwindles out of their relationship. Um, uh, She pretended like she didn't know what she was doing which is kind of interesting. Like she had all these poems she'd written and then she writes the Higginson, like, I don't know. Is this, is this good? You know, meanwhile, she's got hundreds of poems that she's written. Right. Um, yeah. And she's, yeah. Um, uh, let me read a little letter, a letter that she wrote to him. That was quite good. Uh, or part of a letter. Um, oh yeah. Actually, hold on. Uh, no. Okay. Um, Okay, I'm going to read part Man, of the letter I, I already read. I'm sorry, just, just this this American intellectual line of like people and transcendentalism mm-hmm. and individualism and everything. If they could see where it landed us, what do you think they would do? Right, go back. <laughs> we got to go back. Yeah. <laughs> this is not what we meant. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a now, different episode. But damn, yeah. Oh goodness. Where's yeah. Waldo? <laughs> That's oh interesting. Waldo's yeah. on OnlyFans. Yeah. Oh God. Uh, All right. Here's here's a letter. Here's part of this letter I already read, but I'm gonna I'm gonna read further of it. <clears throat> Her letter to uh, Higginson. Could you believe me without, this is when she'd ask for her, um, he'd ask for her portrait. I had no portrait now, but I'm small like the wren and my hair is bold like the chestnut burr and my eyes like the sherry in the glass that the guests leave that the guest leaves would this not do just as well it often alarms father he says death might occur and he has molds of all the rest but he has no mold of me but i noticed the quick wore off those things in a few days and forestalled the dishonor you will think no caprice of me right um there's an interesting uh there's an interesting and i don't have the full letter here but at one point she gives him, she says this line to him that I think is wonderful. And I only, I think I only partially understand what it means. She says, my business is circumference. This, I mean, deal with that. <laughs> what, well, I mean, my brain is, I can come up with all, all kinds of things. I mean, I could only circle the thing, the thing itself. Right, right. right. Yeah. I can I only think, ever... Right track yeah. the thing yeah i think yeah, that's, that's, I think that's all our yeah yeah that's us 
mean, she's making I, epistemological statements. She's right. making statements about the nature of knowing and reality. Yeah. Yeah. And but, what how, a, but what a line. What right? a great line. Yeah, of course. And it is poetic. Yeah. My business. Right. And again, I told you this mercantile. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's using yeah. this language of what? Yeah. It's a mathematical term. It's mm-hmm. it, she's literally talking about business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Meter. Right. Yeah, poetry. Right. It's all in there. It's all embedded in there. Yeah. Um, now it, it, it's course. also that's also a alliterative. My business is circumference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's like a slant rhyme in there almost. Yeah. Um, uh, now, eight years after their correspondence, they would correspond quite a bit. And partially he didn't respond quickly because, I mean, for part of it, he's the dude's fighting a war. So he wasn't always the quickest to respond. Um, but Eight years after their first correspondence, with with much of the childish naive, naivete of her letters and some of the deference, she sometimes would refer to him uh, herself sign off as your gnome because she once referred to him as her. he once referred to her as gnomic, and she would then sign letters your gnome, which I think is funny. Um, but finally. And he would invite her to Boston literary events and things, and she would never go. Finally, he came to visit her. Um, eighteen seventy. Um, and he, this is a letter. I'll read briefly a letter he wrote before he came to visit her. Um, sometimes quote, sometimes I take out your letters and verses, dear friend. And when I feel their strange power, it is not strange that I, it is not strange that I find it hard to write in that long months pass pass. I have the greatest desire to see you always feeling that perhaps if I could once take you by the hand, I might be something to you. But till then, you only enshroud yourself in this fiery mist, and I cannot reach you, but only rejoice in the rare sparkles of light. Now, him going to meet her, this is a kind of a famous meeting in the literary world, um, because very few depictions of her um, from her, quote unquote, seclusion survive. And he went to see her and she came down and met him in 1870, well into her seclusion. Um, I'm going to read a bit from an Atlantic article. <clears throat> uh, let's see. First quote first from the heard, from the period or from um, it's it's more recent than that, but okay. it it sort of depicts it as as yeah, when, sort of when yeah. did the Atlantic start? Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, you might. Yeah, a long time ago for sure. <clears throat> first quote. First, he heard her from upstairs in the second floor. Came the sound of quick, light footsteps. Footsteps that sounded like a child's. Then she entered, a plain woman with two bands of reddish hair, not particularly good-looking, wearing a white peaked dress. The white, the white stunned him. It was exquisite. A blue worsted shawl, shawl covered her shoulders. She seemed fearful to him, breathless at first, and extended her hand, not to shake, but to offer something. These are my introduction, she said, handing him two daylilies. Forgive me if I am frightened. I never see strangers and hardly know what I say. Then Dickinson looked at him, a tall man in his mid-forties with a joyful face, she thought, dark-haired, whiskered, graceful. He looked kind. Once they sat, Dickinson began talking, and she did not stop. When she experienced eye problems several years before, she told him, quote, it was a comfort to think there were so few real, real books that I could easily find someone to read me all of them. She wondered how people got through their days without thinking. Quote, how do most people live without any thoughts? She said, there are many people in the world. You must have noticed them on the street. How do they live? How do they get strength to put on their clothes in the morning? 
She was full of aphorisms, sentences that seemed to have been crafted earlier in her mind and that she wanted to share. Quote, women talk, men are silent. That is why I dread women. Truth is such a rare thing, it is delightful to tell it. Is it oblivion or absorption when things pass from our minds? Uh, at times, Dickinson seems self-conscious and asks Dickinson to jump in. <laughs> she was a, say, that, say, whoa, whoa, whoa. say that one more time. Uh, starting with women talk, men are silent. That is why I dread women. Truth is such a rare thing. It is delightful to tell it. Is it oblivion or absorption when things pass from our minds? That one. Yeah. Oh, is it oblivion or absorption when things pass from our minds? I don't know. Is it oblivion or absorption when things pass through our minds? Yeah, like what is what happens to a thought? No, I know she's yeah, she's right? speculating on the nature of the subconscious. Mm -hmm. There, yeah. Does yeah. it does it fall into our brains or does it go nowhere? Wow, right, right, <laughs> right. I don't know. I, think I don't know either. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right right yeah. got it we got a bit of a deep thinker here <laughs> yeah right uh at times dickinson quote uh <sighs> carrying on at times dickinson seemed self-conscious and asked higginson to jump in but every time he tried she was off again and words tumbled out almost uncontrollably he tried to recall every phrase every thought even her tone humor and asides quote my father only reads on sundays he reads lonely and rigorous books she said once she recalled her brother, Austin brought home a novel that they knew their father would not condone. Austin hid it under the piano cover for Dickinson to find. When she was young, she said, and read her first real book, she was ecstasy, in ecstasy. This, then, is a book, she exclaimed, and there are more of them. She boasted about her cooking, and she said she made all the bread for the family, puddings too. Quote, people must have puddings, she said. The way she said it, so dreamy and abstracted, sounded to Higginson as though she were talking about comets. Oh, um, she refers to him. I don't have it in front of me. She refers to him in this great line in a letter. She talks about Higginson's eyes as two isolated comets. I just think that's such a strong image. Yeah. Dickinson said that uh, her life had not been constrained or dreary in any way. So this is in her seclusion, right? Quote. I find ecstasy in living, she explained. The mere sense of living is joy enough. Um, <clears throat> end quote. When at last the opportunity arose, Higginson posed the question he most wanted to ask. Did you ever want a job, have a desire to travel or see people? The question unleashed the forceful reply. Quote, I never thought of conceiving that I could ever have the slightest approach to such a want in all future time. Then she loaded on more. Quote, I feel that I have not expressed myself strongly enough. Dickinson reserved the most striking statement for what poetry meant to her, or rather how it made her feel. Quote, if I read a book and it makes my whole body so cold, no fire can ever warm me, I know that is poetry, she said. If I feel physically as if the top of my head were taken off, I know that is poetry. These are the only way I know it. Is there any other way? Dickinson was remarkable, brilliant, candid, deliberate, mystifying, after eight years of waiting, Higginson was finally sitting across from Emily Dickinson of Amherst, and all he wanted to do was listen. Okay. Um, here's just I'm not going to read all this, though. It's, it's worth digging up this article and reading the whole thing if you're interested in this. Um, let's see. Um, Guy was a socialist. Yeah. Yeah. Higginson was? 
Yep. Yeah, probably. Probably. Um, yeah. Qu- quote. Uh, here's something. You, and you're telling me the Atlantic is uh, interested in one of uh, their letters? Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> quote. Here's something you said. Quote. Gratitude is the only secret that cannot reveal itself. Let's think about that for a while. It's like a Zen Cohen. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, uh, Higginson said he hoped to see her again sometime, and she abruptly interrupted him. Quote. Say in a long time. She corrected. That will be nearer. Sometime is nothing. Right? He was saying, I'll come see you sometime. She said, Tell me you're going to see me in a long sometime isn't anything. That means you're not. So if you're going to come see me, tell me it's fine if it's a long time. I just uh, think it's interesting how deeply words are, are, how deeply meaningful words are to her. Um, I'm really disturbed because I looked up, you know, Dickinson and Higginson and I landed on dickinson.fandom.com for this Ah, tv show you know like uh, it's like a very high ranking i was just like oh cringe yeah yeah get me out of here yeah now um oh yeah here here we go i meant this is what i meant so i'm gonna quit reading oh oh you know what there is one other part sorry um higginson later so higginson is sort of haunted by her to a certain degree which makes sense sure um uh, she, she's spooky. She I'm is. haunted by her. I just yeah. I just met her through this episode, right. and she's right. freaking yeah. me out, you sh- man. You should be a little freaked out. Yeah, I I'm a um, little. Yeah. yeah. It quote. Uh, it took every ounce of his being to meet her level of intellectual intensity, and then later he says, "quote I never was with anyone who drained my nerve power so much. Without touching her, she drew from me. I am glad not to live near her. It's like she's too much, right?" Yeah, she's yeah. over the top. Yeah. yeah. If now, you want to feel like that, Brad and I are like that in the telegram at t.me slash art of dark pod. Some of yeah. our some of our friends are like that in there too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll drain your nerve power. Yeah, we'll drain we'll, we'll drain your nerve power. Yeah. yeah. Join us. It's fun. Yeah. Now let me read a little bit more of a letter to from her to him. Um <clears throat> this is I'm just picking it up in the middle. Um you said, and am I even gonna just let's let the words hit you it doesn't matter specific references here and she's writing to him you said dark i know the butterfly and the lizard and the orchid are not those your countrymen i am happy to be your scholar and will deserve the kindness i cannot repay if you truly consent i recite now Will you tell me my fault, frankly, as to yourself? For I had rather wince than die. Men do not call the surgeon to commend the bone, but to set it, sir, and fracture within is more critical. And for this, preceptor, I shall bring you obedience, the blossom from my garden, and every gratitude I know. Perhaps you smile at me. I could not stop for that. My business is circumference and ignorance, not of customs, but if caught with the dawn or the sunset see me, myself the only kangaroo among the beauty. Sir, if you please, it afflicts me, and I thought that instruction would take it away. Because you have much business besides the growth of, of the growth of me, you will appoint yourself how often I shall come without your inconvenience. And if at any time you regret you receive me, or I prove a different fabric to that you supposed, you must banish me. When I state myself as the representative of the verse, it does not mean me, but a supposed person. You are true about the perfection. Today makes yesterday mean. You spoke of Pipa Passes. I never heard anyone speak of Pipa Passes before. I have no idea what that sentence is about. You see my posture is benighted. 
to thank you baffles me. Are you perfectly powerful? Had I a pleasure you had not, I could delight to bring it. Your scholar. Just like, imagine getting this in the mail. You're like, what? <laughs> what am I reading? What is this? Yeah. Um, There's that now, thing on the bell curve where you're like, is she on the all the way on the left? Is she crazy? Or is she like on the right? She's so smart. She's on the right. She's like too, there's too much going on. Yeah. 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 And and for that, you know, it's kind of like that, an Alice in Wonderland, C.S. Lewis kind mm-hmm. of a riddle. And, and, the tr- and the trick is she probably wrote this in response to a letter he wrote. And maybe some of more of it makes sense. But she had all of the letters to her destroyed. So you only have her half of the correspondence. Oh, wow. So it's like it's yeah. difficult to understand what she could be in responding to and whatnot, you know. <clears throat> right. And they're certainly not writing like she's writing. No. No, no, no. Yeah, they're probably writing yeah. normal-ish More letters. Normal letters, yeah. yeah How are you? Great. Yeah. <laughs> um, they may they may elevate and try to. I think there was. I mean, I think yeah. I think amongst especially the well-educated, the people who are interested in literature and things, they probably were elevating it to something approximating an art form. I'm sure. Um, now, after Dickinson died. Higginson would be haunted by this acquaint, acquaint, her acquaintance and would basically reassess her poetry. Um, didn't necessarily mean that he understood it. Here's the thing about Emily or, or Emily and Higginson. To Higginson, writing is a craft. There are rules, there are conventions, there are ways of doing things. And he's not wrong specifically, but to Emily, writing was something more like magic. She thought words could kill people. She thought words could heal people. She was a witch. <laughs> oh, you're muted, Kevin. They, oh, Sorry, I'm not man. muted. I'm just oh. whispering. Uh, <laughs> I, I was I was just saying they 100% can. Yeah, yeah, they can. Yeah, exactly. It's She's true. not wrong. She's yeah, now, right. Yeah. yeah. Now here, let me give you two witchcraft poems from Emily Dickinson. <clears throat> Quote, best witchcraft is geometry to the magician's mind. His ordinary acts are feats to thinking of mankind. That's one. Here's another one. Witchcraft was hung in history, but history and I find all the witchcraft that we need around us every day. Damn. That, I mean, that could be the poem for this podcast. Read, read, yeah. it, uh, read it again. Read it again. <clears throat> witchcraft was hung in history, but history and I find all the witchcraft that we need around us every day. Damn. Yeah. Um, so my, my part of this point, I'm telling this whole Higginson story. She didn't go into seclusion because she felt rejected as a poet. Right. She was continuing to these correspondences. She was continuing to share poetry with people. She was continuing to write poetry from 1861 to 1862. She wrote 366 poems. This was her white heat productivity period and the beginning of her seclusion. Right now. Here's another thing. Um, Higginson passed along her poetry to another woman named Helen Hunt Jackson. Helen Hunt Jackson was one of the most notable American women writers of the 19th century. So we we said Sam Bowles, Springfield Republican, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, um, uh, who is the, uh, the the famous preacher Wadsworth, and now Helen Hunt Jackson, who was like a minor, like a celebrity of letters, right? Um, her uh, her novel Ramona about the uh, federal government's mistreatment of natives was very, very popular. She was also born in 1830, the same year as Emily. Um, 
she not only deeply admired Emily's work, but stridently advocated for her and pressured her to publish. So Helen Hunt, you've got one of the best writers and most well-known writers in the country saying, please, for the love of God, let me publish this poem someplace, right? Um, eventually, it she gets her to publish, agree to publish one poem. And this comes out in what's called a no-name series. And this Roberts Brothers publisher put out this volume of poetry in which no author's names were given. Um, some of the poems were from up and comers and some of them were from established poems. And socially, the game was to kind of guess who wrote what one. Right. Um, so she agreed. Emily agreed to have one of her poems put into that volume. Different times, um, man. Different yeah, times. Yeah, very sure. it seems like a very small world. And it mm -hmm. still is, baby. Yeah. It oh, still yeah. Is. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah now. Um, so I was going to read a thing from Hen Henry, uh, Helen Hunt Jackson, but I think we'll just move on. I want to read a poem, um, number 112. So it's early in her career, but it's just one that I like, and I just like excuses to read one, but we're it's sort of thematically relevant to what we're talking about. Quote, success is counted sweetest by those who never succeed to comprehend a nectar requires sores need. Not one of all the purple hosts who took the flag today can tell the definition so clear of victory. As he defeated, dying on whose forbidden ear, the distant strains of triumph burst agonized and clear. I love that burst agonized and clear. Like, oof, that's a good, that's a good sentence. There was a, there was an early line that I really appreciated. Uh, read it one more time for me real quick. Sick Success is counted sweetest by those who never succeed. To comprehend a nectar requires sorest need. That yeah. one, that one. Yeah. To comprehend a nectar requires sorest need. That's a great line. Yeah. Right. The yeah. person who has a glass of orange juice. Oh yeah. Hold on. Let me give you another one. Who, she wrote. Yeah. Who who uh, who appreciates it better? The guy who has it or the guy who doesn't have mm -hmm. it? Mm -hmm. There's there. Look at this one. Hold on. I wasn't even going to read this one, but let me just give it to you. <clears throat> Water is taught by thirst, land by the ocean's past, transport by throw, peace by its battles told, love by memorial mold, birds by the snow. Yeah, that rocks. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, good. Here's stuff. another. Yeah. I stand, Emily D. Uh, me too. I stand, Emily D. This is. I'm good. gonna read the whole. I haven't read all 1,700 poems yet, but I'm going to. I got um, them here somewhere, man. Yeah. I'm ready. I'm ready for book club too for Patreon. Yeah. I hope yeah. you get ready as well. Patreon.com/slash/artofdarkpod. Yes. Yeah. Support independent media. Brad, we're you're doing a bang up job, man. We're coming into what our it's gonna be our five. <laughs> at uh, yeah, we're getting we're getting yeah. there though. We've we're good. We're, we're definitely getting there. Oh, we're the getting bulk there. Of it's awesome. Past. Yeah. Oh, you're crushing uh, it. I yeah. see what you're doing too because you're giving us her life through these uh people she corresponded with. And yeah, you, it's kind of yeah. the only way to do it is through sort of obliquely and hopefully hopefully we're able to suspend an image of her kind of yeah. Yeah, that's working for me. Yeah. Yeah. Now here's another reason that people have claimed that she went into seclusion, and this would be her health. Um, we're going to talk more about this in the after dark because there's been further scholarship. This is ongoing scholarship trying to figure out what physically uh, health wise, what might have been wrong with Emily Dickinson. Um, people have claimed that she was an agoraphobic. Maybe that's true. I don't really know. Um, one thing is certain is that she had some You're kind of, of Al Gore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, who is it? Um, he <laughs> he's going to tell you something very internet. inconvenient, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm Al Gorophobic. 
<laughs> right. That's pretty funny. Um, so uh, in 1864, remember, she started to become a recluse in 1862. In 1864, she spends several months in Boston having her eyes treated by famed ophthalmologist Henry Willard Williams. Okay. Now, here's something that she said in the letter. <clears throat> the eyes are as with you, sometimes easy, sometimes sad. I think they are not worse, nor do I think them better than when I came home. This is during her treatment. The snow light offends them and the house is bright. Vinny is good to me, but cannot see why I don't get well. This makes me think I am long sick and this takes the ache to my eyes. Now, um, let me read a little bit more here. This is from, uh, I think this is from the emilydickinsonmuseum.org, I believe. Quote, while several theories have been advanced, the most likely explanation for the eye problem is, uh, is that she suffered from iritis, an inflammation of the fine muscles of the eye. For Dickinson, who feared blindness, prolongation of this illness was agonizing in ways beyond the physical. Her doctor's order, her doctor orders for confinement in dim light, no reading, and writing only with a pencil for some reason, explain why she called her first Cambridge siege eight months of Siberia. Which even that is this nice turn of phrase. Like she had to go someplace else for medical treatment and she refers to it as eight months in Siberia. I love that. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Um, here's another reason why people have said she was secluded. Now, again, on After Dark, we're going to talk about another speculative theory and we're going to explore it a little bit about an illness that may have afflicted her. It's certainly not proven, but it's worth talking about. Um Here's another thing that people have suggested was the reason she secluded her relationship with her parents. As we said, her father had somewhat of a reputation of being authoritative and her mother was kind of a hypochondriac. Maybe their family life was so difficult that like it sort of broke her will against sort of going out and having a life of her own. Austin, her brother, had had the opportunity to sort of go out into the world and make a make a living outside of Amherst and had decided not to. Instead, he'd stayed home and become one of the most prominent men in town. When he got married to Susan, he was like the most eligible bachelor in Amherst, right? So he'd stayed home. She stayed home. The Dickinsons were home were homebodies. Um here, I'm going to give you a little uh, quote. This is from the Crumbly book about the dashes, but it's a nice little bit. Quote, biographers generally hold Edward Dickinson, Emily's father, responsible for his son's failure to leave Amherst, and they attribute to excessive uh, possessiveness the pressure he put on Austin, Austin and Susan to stay. Actually, Edward Dickinson spent little time with his family and was off on business trips or out to public meetings most of the time. It was certainly his idea, his idea that each of his children be sent away for part of their schooling. And Emily's remark that her father was, quote, too busy with his briefs to notice what we do does not convey the picture of a man dependent on his children. Austin, therefore, probably did not set, settle next door primarily to meet some emotional need of his father. Now, I think um, let's read a little a little letter. So basically this theory that her, she sort of stayed at home and didn't leave the house because her parents had sort of broken her will. There does not seem to be much merit to that. It really comes out of a story later when Vinny, her sister was trying to build up the Emily Dickinson myth. Vinny was a little bit of a fabulist, right? So she turned, my father was kind of a stern stoic man into my father yeah. was a monster, right? Yeah. I think maybe her problem yeah. was that she had a sister named Vinny. <laughs> right and Vinny didn't marry either which 
which is interesting to note. And she was she was eligible and she was attractive. That's a, that's a very a big bit of a firebrand, though. A very big deal. You're in, the most prominent man in town, and you have two daughters, and neither of them get married. Neither of them get married. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. something's up, right? Mm. Now, hmm. um, Emily's father dies in 1874. I'm gonna just read this this letter that she wrote to um uh I think she wrote this to Higginson, actually, but um, yeah. <clears throat> okay. Quote the last afternoon that my father lived though with no premonition, I preferred to be with him and invented an absence for mother Vinnie being asleep. He seemed peculiarly, maybe that's why I said it early. Cause she says it here. He seemed peculiarly <laughs> pleased as I often stayed with myself and remarked as the afternoon withdrew quote, he would not like it to end. He would like it not to end. So normally she's up in her room this day. She decided, um, uh, on the last afternoon he was alive, she decided to come and stay with him. His pleasure almost embarrassed me and my brother coming. I suggested they walk. Next morning, I woke I woke him for the train and saw him uh, no more. So the next day he went off to Boston and he died in Boston. This is the in this line. Think, imagine this line. You write this father's past and you write this line. <clears throat> His heart was pure and terrible. And I think no other like it exists. I am glad there is immortality, but would have tested it myself before entrusting him. <clears throat> Mr. Bowles was with us. With that exception, I saw none. I have wished for you since my father died and had you an hour unengrossed. It would be almost priceless. Thank you for each kindness. My brother and sister, thank you for remembering them. Your beautiful hymn. Was it not prophetic? It has assisted that pause of space, pause of space, which I call father. So, yeah. Um, another thing that people have said was the reason for Emily Dickinson becoming a recluse, locking herself away. But as we see, we've had multiple stories about her visiting with people, right? So how there are shades of seclusion, right? There's living in a cave and no one knows you're there. And there's being a public figure. Emily Dickinson is clearly somewhere in between these two. Um, you know, she didn't like being social, though. I think that's clear. She didn't want to go to parties. She didn't want to go across, you know, she didn't want to go to church. Probably, these sorts of probably things. an introvert here. Yeah. An extreme introvert. Yeah. What I is she doing so. with her time? She's just reading and writing little poems and, writing and poetry. Well, that's the thing. She had a lot of domestic duties, too. And people will claim that she didn't. She had some forgiveness from her father, but like her and Vinny were kind of part in part running the household. So she's baking bread. She's making pudding later years. She's taking care of her mother, um, you know, and otherwise it's she's plenty to out. do. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When running a house before like electricity. Sure. Is a, a hassle. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's a it's hassle, a hassle now. now. Yeah, but now we're exactly. talking about clothes and right. the washing board and yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Um, now, here's another thing that people so parents, I don't think I don't think the relationship with the parents is enough to sort of break her spirit and keep her home. One thing that people have supposed, though, is that she was so sensitive that early and ongoing death amongst people she cared about sort of broke her like she didn't want to be out in the world because it's just hollowness and, and, and ugliness and death. Now, here's a quote from the Crumbly book. Quote, the slipping may have begun as early as her 13th year when Sophia Holland's death precipitated the depression, which the poet called a, quote, fixed melancholy. 
Her letters to Abaya Root, Jane Humphrey, and Austin over the next few years all speak periodically of low spirits in such a way as to suggest that depressions were a common occurrence. Almost any circumstance, illness, the beginning of a new year, religious doubt, separation from her family, was sufficient to trigger a mood of deep and troubled sadness. Thus, uh, oh, sorry, happiness was a rare and not to be expected phenomenon. Thus, after a visit to her beloved Aunt Lavinia, Emily writes, quote, I am visiting in my aunt's family and am happy. Happy. Did I say? Uh, no, not happy, but contented. <laughs> she habitually used the word desolate in describing her feelings, and as early as her 21st year, she begins to think of the dead with something to akin to envy. Upon the death of her the, a neighbor's daughter, she writes, Austin, I don't know, but they, the dead, are the happier, and we who no longer stay, the more to be sorrowed for. And we, and we who longer stay, the more to be sorrowed for. And that's a little poem right there. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, your hot topic girlfriend. Yeah, yeah. From the mid nineties. Yeah. Who's off, now, who's off her meds? Right, right, yeah. right. But right. hey, listen, I feel you. Yeah, I'm with you. Man, um, not wrong. Um, no, it's tough. She had a um, sorrow she, is for the living. Mm -hmm, indeed. Yeah. Mm. She had a friend named Ben Newton early on, um, who was a law student working in her father's office, and she called him the first of my own friends. Um, he was, quote, a gentle yet grave preceptor and, quote, an elder brother loved very much indeed. Right. Um, he was just a li smart, literate, fun, interesting guy who was friendly with her. And they had a correspondence. And he felt like she was or she felt like he had taught him things about literature, introduced him to books and that sort of thing. Now, um, this is from the Emily Dickinson Museum .org. Newton, as she called him, <clears throat> Uh, came to Amherst in the fall of 1847, 26 years old, desiring to study for two years in the recently formed. I already gave you all that. Um, Emily Dickinson met him just as she enrolled in Mount Holyoke, and she became acquainted with his love of books during several weeks the following March that she was home nursing a severe cold, supposedly. We're, we'll get into this severe cold later. She later wrote, quote, Mr. Newton became to me a gentle yet grave, uh, he uh, teaching me to read gentle yet grave preceptor teaching me to read what authors to admire what was most grand or beautiful in nature and that sublimer lesson of faith in things unseen now he would die um young and she would write a letter this is where she starts to seems seemingly in ben newton's death she seemingly starts to become obsessed with what she referred to as her flood subject and the flood subject is the concept of immortality um and I think when she starts to talk about immortality, we're talking about like a Gurdjieffian immortality, like that there is some way through some action on her part, there is some way in which she can crystallize an immortal life. Like, I don't think she was, I think she ceased living in the present at all in some, in some way. Um, but interestingly, she writes this letter to um uh, a stranger um after the death of ben newton let me just read it <laughs> dear reverend mr hale pardon the liberty sir which a stranger takes in addressing you but i think you may be familiar with the last hours of a friend and i therefore transgress a courtesy which in another circumstance i should seek to observe i think sir you were the pastor of mr newton who died some time since in, Wor in Worcester, and I often have hoped to know if his last hours were cheerful. 
and if he was willing to die. Had I his wife's acquaintance, I would not trouble you, sir, but I have never met her and do not know where she resides, nor have I a friend in Worcester who could satisfy my inquiries. You may think my desire strange, sir, but the dead was dear to me, and I would love to know that he sleeps peacefully. She just wanted to know what his final moments were like, right? She continued a correspondence with this reverend for a while, too, interestingly enough. Um, yeah. Um, so, you know, I guess the point I'm, I'm trying to make is she was certainly plagued by death. I think most people alive then knew a lot of people that died throughout their life, but she's a particularly sensitive person. Um, the worst death she encountered was well after she had secluded herself, which was in 1883, um, her little nephew Gilbert died. He was only eight years old and she was devastated. This was, she would die three years later. And in some indications, if you read the chronology of her illness, this is sort of like the thing that started kind of pushed the rock down the hill. And three years later, she's dead is this death of Gilbert. And then you have to wonder if she's so secluded, if she's such a recluse, why does, how does she have such a close relationship with this little boy? Right. Like she had to have been spending time with him. Right. She was at home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. She, and, and, and also like a, a woman at that time, unmarried woman at that time, what kind of a public life is she going, going to have really? One right. wonders. Yeah. 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 Now there, there are stories it'd about the, how it'd be the church. Right. It, and she, yeah. she, mm-hmm. she couldn't buy into the church. She had her reasons, you know, she couldn't do it. Um, she apparently there are stories about how she would drop she would put uh treats in a little basket and 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 rope them down out of her window to passing children right which is a sweet little story and you imagine at this time people were calling her the myth people in amherst called her the myth because very few people actually saw like laid eyes on her and certainly if you weren't in the dickinson circle you never saw her right like if you're just some guy who lives on the other side of town there's no way you would ever see yeah you're not going to knock on the door and say i'm calling for emily right and she wouldn't come down to see you right so so yeah to some people she must have seemed extremely reclusive but to little gilbert her nephew that was just aunt emily and you know she's kind of quiet she kind of stays in her room you know (laughs) yeah um i think i don't think this death thing can crack cracked her so much that it made her stay inside it certainly was um, ever present in her life and preoccupied her feelings but she struggled she had hope too i mean the first poem i read is hope is the is the thing with feathers that perches in my soul and it's sort of indestructible right um so she has that too um i'm gonna read another poem it's because i like reading these poems man um they're good poems. They are. She's a good. She's a good poet. She is a good poet. She's. Yes. I'm sold. Yeah. Number two fifty two. This is. <clears throat> I can wade grief whole pools of it. I'm used to that. But the least push of joy breaks up my feet, and I tip drunken. Let no pebble smile. Twas the new liquor that was all. Power is only pain stranded through discipline till weights will hang. Give balm to giants and they'll wilt like men. Give Himalaya, they'll carry him. Himalaya of the mountains. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Um, Let me read one other one. Sort of related. Maybe not. I don't care. I want you to hear it. Uh, This is number 789. On a columnar self... How ample to rely in tumult or extremity, how how good the certainty. 
that lever cannot pry and wedge cannot divide conviction that granitic base though none be on our side suffice us for a crowd ourself and rectitude and that assembly not far off from furthest spirit god okay here's one more while i'm looking at it because this is a good one it's right here they say that time assuages time never did assuage and actual suffering strengthens as sinews do with age time is a test of trouble but not a remedy if such it prove it proved to there was no malady okay now i think now we're getting close because i'm going to talk about the last reason she might have become a recluse and this is the one that i think is the most significant maybe these all contributed to it and in my you know her and, and let's review them love catastrophe feeling isolated from the religion and social stri- religious and social strictures of her life right feeling just alienated from being an amherst puritan um her parents uh, the psychological psychological breaking her spirit of her parents illness um just not being able to deal with death and the realities of life i think i think I don't like this one because I think Emily Dickinson could face the real realities of life as well as anyone. I think she looked right down into the eyeball of things. You know what I mean? Um, But here's the one that I think, and my heading for it is just poetry. What if she just thought writing poetry was more important than anything else? Right? Sure. Is it that crazy of a thing? I mean, not going to make a living from it. Right. It's not going to get her a husband. No. She probably doesn't, didn't want one or her time passed. She yeah. wasn't able to. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. I'm willing yeah. to go with you here. Right. Now, I think let's read a little, let's read one more here. Okay. <clears throat> this is a, a poem 270, which would have been around 1860 when the seclusion really started. One life of such con- of much con- sorry, let's start over. Quote, one life of so much consequence, yet I for it would pay my soul's entire income in ceaseless salary. One pearl to me so signal that I would instant dive, although I knew to take it would cost me just a life. The sea is full, I know it. That does not blur my gem. It burns distinct from all the row, intact in diadem. The life is thick, I know it, yet not so dense a crowd, but monarchs are perceptible far down the dustiest road. Okay, I'm going to just read a little bit in the biography uh, about this poem. The pearl, the gem, the diadem, though never without the religious resonance for her, are by now well-established metaphors for her poetry. She is saying here that the price is worth it. It is tempting to see the last stanza as her ironic ironic comment on the lady poet poets whose verses graced the columns of the Republican and her prediction of the ultimate verdict of time, right? I think this poem is partially, and uh, there's other evidence too, that she's sort of like this gem, this poetry, I'll just give it all. I would give it all up for that. If it's at the bottom of the sea, I will die for it, right? Um, I'll, you know, so there's, there's some evidence here. Now, I think 
Now, this doesn't mean all of the other reasons are BS. I think there is something going on, particularly with the Susan Gilbert relationship. I mean, we have to think about the fact that she lived next door to this woman for years. She wrote many, 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 many letters to her. She addressed many poems specifically to her. Um, they could have easily met for late night rendezvous, right? I mean, they live right next door to each other. Um, and that could have gone easily gone undetected. There is some indication that they may have met and at least handed letters to her. And possibly there was this sort of forlornness of just like looking out the window at this woman that you love, right? But there is a moment. Um, Emily Dickinson's niece wrote a memoir about Aunt Emily. And she tells a story about one time Emily brought her into the bedroom, the famous Emily Dickinson bedroom. And she locked the door. And she showed her niece the key and said, this is freedom. <laughs> so, yeah. Bam. Right. A room of her own. A room of her own for real, right? The soul selects her own society yeah. is a, a famous Emily Dickinson line. Now, I'm going to read a last, a, a little is, bit. Yeah. And that's for men and women. That is a human yep. thing. If you yeah, can't absolutely. get a room where you can close the door and think you're, yeah. it's going to be a hard, hard yeah. road for you to be a writer. Yeah. You might as well just go dig a ditch. Yep. Really? Yeah. Um, there's a great um, essay from the seventies by Adrian, uh, Adrian Rich, who's a poet and a feminist activist and quite a talented writer. Um, called Vesuvius at Home that's about Emily Dickinson, trying to figure out what Emily Dickinson's up to. And this is her her thesis is that Emily Dickinson basically stayed home because she was a poet and a religiously serious poet, right? Who took it as serious as anybody has ever taken anything, right? Um, and there's there's a couple of things she's she relates this to. Um, let me read one. We're only going to have one or two more poems from Emily Dickinson. We're getting we're getting there. Here's an Emily Dickinson poem, though. <clears throat> Quote, he put the belts around my life. I heard the belt, the buckle snap and turned away imperial my lifetime folding up deliberate as a duke would do a kingdom's title deed. Henceforth, a dedicated sort, a member of the cloud. Yet not too far to come at call and do the little toils that make the circuit of the rest and deal occasional smiles to lives that stoop to notice mine and kindly ask it in whose invitation know you not for whom I must decline. Right now, Adrian Richmond, or just read this quote from her. She's talking about that poem I just read and another poem. Um, quote, these two poems are about possession and they seem to be a poet's poems. That is, they're about the poet's relationship to her own power, which is exterior exteriorized in masculine form, much as masculine poets have invoked the female muse. In writing at all, particularly in unorthodox and original poetry like Dickinson's, women have felt uh, often felt in danger of losing their status as women. And this status has always been defined in terms of relationship to men as daughter, sister, bride, wife, mother, mistress, muse. Since the most powerful figures in patriarchal culture have been men, it seems natural that Dickinson would assign a masculine gender to that in herself, which did not fit in with the conventional ideology of womanliness, right? There's something about she's giving up 
even being entirely a woman. And, th- and this isn't in some sort of like transgender thing. She's sort of identifying her with the, like the mask, what she would have thought of as the masculine generative power within her. Right. Um, now there is a little bit more about this. Um, Art has can, no gender. It doesn't. No, it, it definitely doesn't. If you assign one, you're basically just making some kind of metaphor and suggesting the constraints of your own understanding. Um, quote, Dickinson's biographer and editor Thomas Johnson has said that he she often felt herself, that is Emily, possessed by a demonic force, particularly in the years 1861 and 1862, when she was writing at the height of her drive. That was when she wrote a poem a day. There are many poems besides he put a belt around my life, which could be read as poems of possession by the daemon, poems which can also be and have been read as the poems of possession by the deity or by a human lover. I suggest that a woman's poetry about her relationship to her daemon, her own active creative power, has in patriarchal culture used the language of heterosexual love or patriarchal theology. Um, yeah, I'm going to just leave that stand. No more comment on that. Now, um, there is huh. one other one other part, because I really think this Adrian Rich, I, I think I probably have some qualms with maybe other things Rich has said or done, but I really think she's she's getting at something core about Emily Dickinson in this piece. Um, okay, here's another part. <clears throat> uh, quote, first, Emily Dickinson did not marry. Okay. And her non-marrying was neither a pathological retreat, as John Cody sees it, another biography, nor probably even a conscious decision. It was a fact in her life as in her contemporary Christina Rossetti's. Both women had more primary needs. Second, unlike Rossetti, she's a well-known poet, uh, writer of Dickinson's time. Unlike Rossetti, Dickinson did not become a religiously dedicated woman. She was heretical, heterodox in her religious opinions, and stayed away from church and dogma. What, in fact, did she allow to put the belt around her life? What did wholly occupy her mature years and possess her? For whom did she decline the invitation of other lives? The writing of poetry, nearly 2,000 poems, 366 poems in the year of her fullest power. What was it like to be writing poetry you knew was of a class by itself, to be fueled by the energy it took first to confront, then to condense that image of psychic experience into that language, then to copy out the poems and lay them in a trunk or send a few here and there to friends or relatives as occasional verse or as gestures of confidence? I am sure she knew who she was, as she, as she indicates in this poem, quote, Myself was formed a carpenter and unpretending time. My plane and I together wrought before a builder came. To measure our attainments, had we the art of boards sufficiently developed, he'd hire us at halves. My tools took human faces, the bench where we had toiled against the man persuaded we temples build, I said. Okay, now. Uh, yeah, okay. I hope I've made the case that maybe, maybe just maybe, she didn't suffer from her life, but she was a powerful intellect, mystical poet, right? A fully realized person yes. and poet and artist. Yeah. And yeah. maybe a little misunderstood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And probably, almost certainly, like many of the artists we've covered on Art of Darkness, a woman out of time. Yes. Yeah. Very yeah. good job, Brad. Yeah. I am... Emily yeah. D. Pilled. Good. Now, all I've got left, really, is I just want to tell you the story of sort of 
her final bid, her how right. she died, how her funeral was arranged, and maybe we'll read one more poem. Okay. Do it. Now, uh, she did, oh, by the way, she did have one more sort of correspondence love affair with this guy, Otis Phillips Lord, who was like a Massachusetts Supreme Court justice. <laughs> but we're not even going to touch on that. Clearly, she had these various love affairs with powerful men, mostly. Now, um, uh, in the early 1880s, Emily Dickinson began to display the symptoms of what's called Bright's disease. Bright's disease is really nobody dies of it anymore. And the reason nobody dies of it anymore is it's it's symptoms that arise from multiple different things. And so in the past, we'd call it Bright's disease. It's basically a kidney affliction, but we've come to find out that it's actually a whole bunch of different things and they just didn't yeah, have enough. You corrected me on the Fitzgerald live episode because you mm. had been researching this and you knew mm. what Bright's disease yeah. was. Yeah, that's and right. I did not. And yeah. here we are. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So she that's what she ended up dying of. Now, uh, in 1886, uh, May 5th, 1886, at the age of 55, died clearly, obviously, in her father's house. She had made some funeral arrangements, however. Now, I'm going to read. This is from Dickinson scholar Martha Nell Smith. <clears throat> Quote, Susan Gilbert's that's, remember, her brother's sister-in-law, the woman she likely had a, a decades-long love affair with. Quote, Susan's enactment of, sim of, of simple ritual for profound utterance is perhaps best displayed in the simple flannel robe she designed in, in which she dressed Emily for death. Laying her out in a white casket, casket uh, cypripidium and violets, uh, symbolizing faithfulness at her neck, two heliotropes symbolizing devotion in her hand. This final act over Emily's body underscores their shared life, their deep and complex intimacy, and that they both anticipated a postmodern, a postmortem resurrection of that intimacy. Besides swaddling her beloved friend's body for burial, Susan penned Emily's obituary, a loving, a loving portrayal of a strong, brilliant woman devoted to family and to her neighbors and to her writing, for which she had the most serious objectives and highest ambitions. Though weary and sick at the loss of her dearest friend, Susan produced a piece so powerful that Higginson wanted to use it as the introduction to the 1890 poems. Indeed, it does serve as the outline for Mabel Loomis Todd's introduction. Susan concludes the obituary pointing readers' attentions to Emily as writer and to the uh, fact that her words would live on. Among her daughter Martha's papers is evidence that these same four lines were used again in a Dickinson ceremony, perhaps to conclude Susan's own funeral. These are the lines. Morns like these, we parted. Noons like these, she rose, fluttering first, then firmer to her fair repose. Um, to finally kind of finish this out, and let me tell you, there are so many other things we could have talked about in this. I know we went a, a bit on the long side, but Man, whew. dude, this right. flew by for me. Good. I good. have had a great time. I <laughs> hope you had a good time too, Brad. I, I know these yeah. are a lot to prepare. Yeah. I know yeah. what you've been through. Yeah. I am probably the, I, in fact, I am the only person who knows what you've been through because <laughs> I am true. your only co-host for Art of Darkness, a podcast yes. about the dark side of creativity. Mm -hmm. Brad has just brought us another banger. Mm -hmm. He's going to bring it in. He's going to land the plane. And then mm -hmm. we're going to do After Dark for Patreon only. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to say this again. If you appreciate what we do, material support, value for value. Mm -hmm. we, we put in, these episodes do not prepare themselves. No. <laughs> Patreon.com no. 
slash art of dark pod. This is not a vibe pod. We're not in New York talking about people we're fucking or dating or whatever else. We're not kvetching about the the latest news. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's fine. Mm -hmm. We're not a friendship simulator. No. Right. Although you could get into Telegram and we will chat with you. T.me slash art of dark pod. We're friendly guys. Yeah. Right. Try to be civil. Okay. And we'll be civil with (laughs) you. But I'm quite serious. We put in the work. And if you've got some value out of this episode and maybe another episode, Mm -hmm. I think it's probably worth $5 a month. What do you think, Brad? Oh, yeah, absolutely, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. And every time a patron comes along, an artist somewhere in the world has their daddy issue solved. Or their right. mommy issues That's true. get solved. Yeah. So yeah. if you go to patreon.com slash art of dark pod, you just you swipe the card, you get to put the card number in, you give us that money. We get to continue to buy the fucking books that we buy. Yeah. yeah. To take, you know, I'm gonna go to Michigan for Art of Darkness Live next year. There's all sorts of other stuff we want to do. The only way this works is if this scales. And if you yeah. scale with us, we know we've got thousands and thousands of listeners. We mm-hmm. don't have thousands and thousands of patrons. It's true. So what's and that's okay. Yeah. Listen, yeah. if you can't yeah. if you can't find it in your heart to support the pod monetarily, there are other ways you can support the pod. You can give us five stars. You can tell your friends about it. But really, truly, yeah. if you like what we're doing, if you don't want more uh, Netflix garbage, if this means anything to you, like it means to Brad and me, mm-hmm. this means a lot to us. We put Absolutely. in the work to bring you this podcast i'm giving you i'm giving you a bit of the hard sell right now but i'm really serious that Mm -hmm. like it means a lot to us when we see that material support because everybody can talk a big game everybody can be yeah i'm all about independent media and i'm all about the arts and i'm all about supporting artists and i'm all about and then like you just never you just never go on to patreon and actually do it i'm telling Mm -hmm. you today Mm -hmm. On this core episode, this what four hour, 20 minute ish core episode that we're doing right now mm-hmm. to go and do the thing at patreon.com slash art of dark pod. Because Brad, I know what Brad just did. Brad, you've been in Emily Dickinson town. Yeah. yeah. You've been in the Emily D zone. It's an weeks. intense place, bro. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Right, because and I'm gonna I'm gonna go on a little bit here before you yeah. wind us down, okay. and then we'll come yeah. back for the after dark mm-hmm. for the people who actually get it, and get the message, and get Patreon. Like we're not just we're not a couple of what, what would you say egghead eggheads? Yeah, right. Yeah. Like we are also artists in our own modest ways, mm-hmm. and so and when we have academic backgrounds. You're an engineer. I have, mm-hmm. I studied history and philosophy and we both have That's MFAs in creative writing. I'm sorry. We have MFAs. Fine. Okay. We're writers. When yeah. we, when you go and you research someone like Emily Dickinson, you're researching her with the insight, with the, the soul matter, the material mm-hmm. of, a, of, of somebody who is also striving to write and to write well. Mm-hmm. So you bring this unique combination of, like earnest enthusiasm, uh, mm-hmm. education, not overly educated. You're not some PhD in American studies. Right. I'm not going to throw 11 polysyllables at you to explain right. what she's doing. Yeah. Right. And, and, and then you're also an artist. So mm-hmm. 
I don't know if that if that means anything to you. If you could just uh, zoom out and imagine, because I'm prepping Frida Kahlo over here. Mm-hmm. I just did Bukowski, right? Yeah. Yeah. And maybe Frida's not your thing. Maybe maybe Hank uh, Bukowski is not your thing, right? Oh, but, but I guarantee if, if if this yeah yeah if if you listen to one and that's not your subject, whole wait an episode or two and we'll hit somebody you want to hear about for sure, guaranteed. That is what I'm talking yeah. about. Annual subscriptions are now available. We make it worth your while because we do extra content for every single episode. And for those who do support us, we really, really appreciate it. All right, Brad, bring it in. Yes, this is arguably, not even arguably, this is generally the consensus of the last poem that Emily Dickinson wrote. Uh, I believe it's number 1768. Quote, The saddest noise, the sweetest noise, the maddest noise that grows. The birds, they make it in the spring at night's delicious close. Between the March and April line, that magical frontier, beyond which summer hesitates almost too heavenly near. It makes us think of all the dead that sauntered with us here by separation sorcery made cruelly more dear. It makes us think of what we had and what we now deplore. We almost wish those sirens siren throats would go and sing no more an ear can break a human heart as quickly as a spear we wish the ear had not a heart so dangerously near hmm. oh. <laughs> yeah <laughs> Ooh, thank you thank you i'm glad to be done with that but holy moly i enjoyed it also so uh What are we talking about on the After Dark, Brad? We are going to talk more about uh, more about Emily's, for lack of a better word, sexuality, including a little bit more about her relationship with Susan Gilbert and possibly some other relationships she may have had with women. And and, and I don't want to talk about this in order to be scandalous. I I think it's it's indicative of how scholarship goes about uh, investigating the life when you don't have all of the details, how do you piece this together? And we're going to kind of talk about that through the story of, of this. We're also going to talk about what was the illness that Emily referred to having at times? What was she afflicted by? And there are hmm. theories about this and counter theories about this. And we're going to, we're going to spend some, we're going to spend some time there. We can't forget the closing question. Oh yeah. What would she be doing today? I'm going to ask you, what do you think she'd be doing today? Because, because I think she could be, I think she'd be a killer writer. I think she would oh, be yeah. a monster today. Yeah. I think yeah. she could have, yeah, she could have, she could have written anything she wanted. I do wonder, I do wonder if the easing up of expectations on women would have allowed her to sort of flourish in a more ordinary lifestyle, maybe. Hmm. And if that were the case, she would have published. I think, see, this is the thing. It's not that she didn't want to publish. Is that every time she did or claimed close to it, nobody understood what she was doing. If she'd have had she, she yeah. feels like she's way like light years ahead of her time. She's yeah. doing something bonkers right, for that right. period. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's now maybe the world would have caught up to her or something. And I think she she could have been a big freaking deal in the literary scene one way or another. I don't think she would have ever gotten to writing novels. She might've written something more memoirish or some kind of hybrid text. Um, uh, but clearly, I mean, she's got the image and the sound and the phrase she's has in the metaphor. She has all of that as 
as locked down as anybody ever has, really. So she could have done something really impressive. She did Another art really of uh, she did something amazing. Yeah. I feel yeah. like I have some cerebral congestion having done this. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no, Kevin. You want to take that so very I'm gonna, seriously. I'm going to go downstairs <laughs> and uh, quick uh, hammer a bunch of water and see if that goes away. Brad, yeah. excellent work. We'll be back Thanks. on the After Dark. Yeah. Amazing grace, how sweet. 